Welcome to TalkCast and for an unusual episode. I'm recording this outside because, well, I couldn't stay inside for another minute. See my latest Substack article for that. I think it's Substack number 13. You're going to hear the sounds of a Sydney winter's day. But bright and sunny, which is unusual for what has been a week of dreary rain, torrential rain. So I'm in the Botanic Gardens as I record this, in fact, and so you'll hear the sound perhaps of children playing off in the distance and traffic going past not far away. And wind, it's rather breezy today. So forgive this introductory audio if it sounds subpar. It won't last. That aside, if you are listening, you may be a die-hard fan for what follows is well over four hours of me live streaming, which I have commenced doing over on YouTube. It's actually three separate live streams I've knitted together into this monster episode. I started off with a couple of trials and then I went into doing what I would call a proper one, which was the third one. Now, whether this is of interest to any of you, my audio podcast listeners, I don't know. But the idea there with live streaming was to do live as opposed to pre-recorded, ask me anything episodes for my Patreons and other supporters and, well, people who follow me on Twitter and, and want me to offer some opinion or provide an answer on, well, basically anything at all. The benefit is that with YouTube live streaming, there's a chat feature. And so while I'm speaking to camera, people can actually ask questions or chat with each other on the live stream feed. So that's a handy little feature. Now, insofar as my other Ask Me Anything videos, my AMAs, are a big step down in terms of effort on my part compared to my other podcasts. I'm not reading, researching, and carefully editing things there. The live streams are a further step down again in effort because I'm not even editing those at all. So for you audio people who will listen to what follows, you will hear pausing and you will hear throat clearing and you will hear me sipping tea. I won't apologise for this because, well, that's the format. It's just a conversation. Now, I plan on incorporating live streams into my regular workflow simply because it's little more than a couple of hours of having a chat and then pressing a button to upload the thing. The video versions are on YouTube, obviously, and YouTube can be used purely as an audio player if you prefer. So I'm not sure whether or not I should be adding each of these live stream things to this podcast feed or not. So I'm going to ask you right now, the listener, should I? Email me, tweet me, or otherwise get in contact, and I'll take that into account as to whether or not I bother putting each of the live streams that I'm recording on YouTube and that are stored on YouTube there also into the regular TotCast feed. The audio podcast here remains far and away the most downloaded to and listened to version of the things I do. But without further ado, here are three... Long live streams, all in a row, conducted over the last week or so. Welcome to the live stream. So this is the first time I've done this, and at the moment I have no watchers. But that's okay. I'll have one watcher. That's fantastic. So I thought I'd do this because a lot of the podcasters and people that I follow on social media and on YouTube, they do live streaming. Now, Yaron Brook is one such person. He's prolific. He's putting out live stream, long form podcasts a few times a week. He's not quite at Joe Rogan's level, but still he's able to keep up the pace of putting out quality material. I actually find, and I think a lot of people do that are 
working in this space, so to speak, that the live stuff is actually the easier stuff. Doing interviews. I've done Clubhouse. I've done Twitter spaces. Whenever you have to just have an interview, there's no preparation involved because someone else is nudging you with the questions. And so I don't mind just talking straight into the camera off the top of my head, especially when someone's asking me stuff. But for my usual content, that's a whole lot of work. I mean, the most recent episode I did about the fabric of reality, universality and the limits of computation. Well, effectively, that was sort of 25 years in the making. Not really, but I mean, that's I first read the book back in 1997, of course. And I don't know how many times I've read the book since then or how many times I've read that particular chapter. But to give you an idea of my sort of workflow, I will, when the chapter is coming up, listen to it on audiobook first. I'll go for a walk and listen uh, from beginning to end, just straight through without interruption. Although I'll take notes along the way as I'm listening to the audiobook of things that I really want to say, um, are questions that I think I might have and might need explore or exposition, <laughs> I might say, or things that I'm particularly interested in. So I'll go on this walk, I'll listen to the audiobook for the chapter. And then when I get home at some time over the next few days, I will read through the text of the chapter as well and then type out comments on the Kindle version on the laptop. The problem is whoever made the notes uh, sort of feature inside of the Kindle there is, uh, I don't know, it's a, ter it's a terrible system for taking notes in the book because you can write a long note and if you hit the wrong button, it'll just delete. It'll just disappear. It doesn't save as you go along. But writing notes in the Kindle within the Kindle app is the best way I've found to be able to highlight sections that I want to emphasize. So after I've done all that, after having effectively read the chapter twice, listened once and then read through the text and taken notes, and then I'll start to actually type out perhaps an introduction, a bit of a script, or at least some more rough notes about what things I will do in order. And so as I'm saying this, it, it's a lot of work. And then that, that's just the beginning before I even film the thing. And however long it takes to film, it takes about three times that amount of time to edit. And so interestingly enough, these live things, no effort at all almost. I hit a button and then I'm going to hit a button that says end stream eventually. And there will be almost no effort on my part. <laughs> Unlike with the, the other stuff that's pre-prepared that requires all that editing and all of that effort. So I can see why um, that kind of video tends to be more rare than this kind of video. Okay, But I don't think I'm going to turn the channel entirely into a live streaming thing. I've been having a lot of ideas lately. And actually today, I'm presuming that this one won't go for very long because I'm a little bit tired. <laughs> I haven't been sleeping as well as I normally have recently because of a lucky and fortunate position I'm in where I'll wake up at like 3 or 4 a.m. with an idea in my head of a blog post or of something, some other project that I'm working on, an idea about how to push it further, uh, something I want to say on the podcast, a particular podcast episode I want to make. I've got a Substack now. I'll think to myself, oh, I've really got to put that in the Substack. And of course, I could go back to sleep or be, a little, be uh, take on a little bit more mindfulness 
and trying to uh, uh, separate myself from the thoughts. But these are these are, for me. These are good thoughts. I need to get up and start writing them down. And so that means it's difficult to get back to sleep. So I'm in I'm in that position at the moment. The last night and the night before that, I were I've been getting up, writing out stuff, ideas for podcasts, ideas for the blog and the Substack newsletter and all this sort of stuff. So it, it's kind of a fortunate position to be in, but unfortunate that it also causes a little bit of weariness as well. Um, hi, Anna Keck. Yeah, so if you have any questions, please ask. Otherwise, I'm just going to be riffing on uh, the, the usual themes, I guess, the, the usual things that I talk about. And of course, one of the main things that I do talk about is optimism, and I've been talking about this recently with a number of people. A number of people have been talking to me about the uh, apparent uh, lack of optimism in the world, and 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 uh, what what causes this lack of optimism, in other words, pessimism, what negative effects this can have uh, in various specific areas of society. There's a pervasive pessimism that exists throughout Western civilization. A lot of people have noticed this. You have people like. Um, uh, Matt Riley, Matthew Riley, who's written The Rational Optimist. So he's noticed the uh, the lack of optimism. And he talks about why we should be better optimists. Steven Pinker talks about it as well. Of course, David Deutsch talks about it. Douglas Murray talks about the flip side, the lack of optimism, and, 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 and certainly about um, the deeply pessimistic attitudes that seem to be taking over vast areas of the West right now. He's particularly concerned about Europe and we're all concerned about the university system uh, and how it's taken a pessimistic turn. The intellectuals have taken a pessimistic turn. Why this is, I don't think anyone has a good explanation, so to speak, but there are hunches, conjectures, guesses that people have about sort of... Uh, what might be causing this culture? Now, my my idea is that it could just be a simple matter, matter of logic as well as coupled with the careerism that exists now in the intellectual community, that rather than seeing uh, a university profession as being a calling of a kind, where one wants to make fundamental changes to our understanding of reality and really push things forward uh, in, in, in major ways, it's incrementalism. Now, I'm a strong believer in incrementalism. I'm a proponent of incrementalism, I should say. We don't want revolution. But at the same time, we want people to be able to think about the foundations of knowledge, challenge those foundations of knowledge so that we can have improved grand theories of how reality works. And so at the moment, we seem to have this, this situation where in academia, unfortunately, it appears as though one of the ways in which to climb the academic ladder is to ape the behaviours and the attitudes and the style of your superiors, of your boss. And why wouldn't you? And at best, maybe incrementally improve on what your boss has done rather than challenge. It's not a good career move to go around challenging everything that your boss says. I've got a super chat. Um, oh, okay, two questions, actually. Oh, this is, 
This is exciting. <laughs> well, we better go to the super chat one first, and then 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 I'll answer Astrid. Astrid's asked a question, but Jeremy's asked a question. Hi, Brett. Great to see you live streaming. <laughs> a question for you. You often criticize pessimism, but can you say what might be a benefit of pessimism? Yes, I was just criticizing pessimism again. Um, so the pessimists are ubiquitous, as I say, throughout intellectual culture, throughout academia. It seems to be the way to get attention. And as I've said many, many, many times before, one of the reasons for this is that there's a certain thrill to hear about disasters. We like going to see disaster movies. It's exciting to see Deep Impact um, or Armageddon, you know, these movies about when the asteroid or the comet is going to crash into the planet Earth. And metaphorically speaking, this is what a lot of intellectuals are doing today, worried about the metaphorical asteroid. Well, the astronomers are worried about the literal asteroids, but name your academic or intellectual, and they will be concerned about a particular problem that could wipe out civilization, especially if they're a scientist of some kind or a philosopher. So they might be concerned about the next terrible strain of a virus that is going to be unable to be countered by any vaccine. It's a legitimate concern to have, no doubt. People might be concerned about the resistance of antibiotics, bacterial resistance to antibiotics. So there's going to be a superbug that no antibiotics ever going to be able to cure, and humanity might be wiped out by that. The AGI, or rather the AI apocalypse to come. Um, Nick Bostrom talks about black balls, that effectively what we're doing as human beings with knowledge is drawing from an urn balls. Some of the balls are white balls, and these balls represent knowledge that is solving a problem. The black ball, which we haven't drawn out yet, is the one ball which, if we do draw it out, it represents the piece of knowledge which could destroy the world and will destroy the world, and we want to avoid that. Now, this way of thinking about knowledge, I think, is completely misconceived. It assumes there can be no solution, that some problems are insoluble, and that's what the black ball is, an insoluble problem. I think that is wrong. And so I've been saying recently in some of my you know, prepared podcasts, unlike this live stream, that there's this thing that I'm just calling the master problem, and the master problem is a slowing of progress, a, a slowing of any amount of progress, because any slowing of progress means that there's going to come a problem one day which we didn't see coming, which we won't be able to generate a solution for in time if we slow down, especially if we slow down too much. And this, unfortunately, is the consequence of the attitude, the pervasive attitude of pessimism that runs through academia and intellectuals. They're all talking about the problems, and rather often the prescribed solution to the problem is to slow down progress in some way, shape, or form, whether it's wealth creation, resource exploitation, something like that, they're slowing things down. And I think that's a far worse problem than any specific problem they're talking about. But now I have to say, in response to Jeremy's question, what is the benefit of pessimism? Well, I guess you need these people to keep on calling out the problem so we don't ignore them. That's a very, very important thing. We want to be able to identify the problems, and that's what they're doing a good job of. It's just that it's, it's become so pervasive, it's become a career for many, many people, it's a way in which to get yourself into the media, 
it's it's entertaining to some extent for the media to hear about problems and catastrophes. We report bad news, don't we, on the news? And so it has this flip side. There seems to be more drawbacks now at the pervasiveness of the pessimism. But, of course, we need a certain number of these people. We need It takes all sorts, as people say. It's a cliche, but it does take all sorts. It takes the pessimists to highlight these problems that otherwise maybe some of us rational optimists might say, just make progress faster, it'll be okay. <laughs> this kind of, um, uh, I don't know what to, to call it really, this not this enlightened interest rather than enlightened disinterest, this enlightened interest in things broadly rather than problems specifically. You see, this is one of the problems with live streaming. I bumped the mic and now I can't edit that out. Okay, so thanks, Jeremy, for that. And thank you for your generosity with the um, the, 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 that, <laughs> that donation. Astrid, why do you think people fixate on measurable impacts people can make on the world using known methods rather than trying to come up with novel solutions? I think that it's not because people are fixated on that. It's because that is an easier job to do. That's something that is learnable via the usual and traditional institutional techniques. Schools and universities are able to train you in, as you say, the uh, known methods. And once you know the known methods, then you can solve the known problems. It depends upon what the method is, though. Of course, if it's the so-called method of science, and as Popper pointed out, there is no single method of science. But the approach towards understanding physical reality, which requires us identifying problems, okay, uh, we begin with theories, we have theories about the world, then we observe, okay, so we always begin with theories, then we observe, and then we find a problem. The observation that we encounter when we point the telescope at the sky, so to speak, doesn't match what we thought we understood about reality. And so this methodology, this way of going about things in astronomy, certainly is a way of producing good knowledge, producing new and interesting stuff. Now, um, rather than trying to come up with novel solutions, well, the novel solutions is the hard bit. As I was just saying about problems, <laughs> identifying problems is the first step and can kind of be done by anyone with a new piece of kit, a new piece of technology. I just saw a story just today. NASA's going to release, it's very exciting for anyone interested in astronomy, the James West, James Webb, James West, <laughs> James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, the, 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 this powerful telescope that's been put in space, you know, the successor, more powerful successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. James Webb Space Telescope is up there collecting images, and it's going to, uh, we're going to be, we're going to see the deepest images of space ever. Now, do we expect there to be something truly surprising there? We don't know. It could be, but maybe not. It's, it's analogous to when the Hubble telescope was first launched in the first couple of years or something, the, this famous story that goes around that the manager of the telescope, who's not usually the person that looks through the telescope, right, or you rather looks through, is able to use the telescope themselves to do research. He 
just manages the telescope for other astronomers who have to apply to use the telescope, apply to NASA to use the telescope, to get telescope time, so it's called. And so it's shared among many, many people competing to get time to use the Hubble Space Telescope. But the manager of the telescope, uh, simply because he's the manager, was given the privilege of being able to use the telescope for a certain number of hours per month for anything that he liked. I can't remember the name of this person, but he decided rather than solve a specific problem that was known in astronomy, you know, observing uh, a quasar more closely, uh, pointing the thing at a distant spiral galaxy collision uh, to take observations that might have been able to constrain what we understand about those processes. Instead, he, he decided he would point the telescope at a region of space where there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that, that was black, dark. So he pointed the telescope there and he imaged that dark patch of sky. Now, the thing about telescopes is that the longer they point at a particular piece of sky, the more light they collect. And so this thing was pointed at that particular piece of sky for, I don't know, hours over the course of a month. And what was revealed was surprising. It was galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. There were, in every place where it appeared to be dark, actually, there were galaxies, but so distant, they were too faint to see. And so the um, uh, that was what was revealed by the Hubble telescope. Now, was that a problem? I guess not really because cosmologists, astrophysicists, astronomers, these people, they kind of guessed that the cosmological principle held. In other words, we weren't in a particularly special place of the universe, in, an, in the universe. When we look out from our position here on Earth, we do see galaxies in every single direction. And so the further you look, the more you're going to see the same thing, more and more and more galaxies. What actually changes is they become more and more redshifted, but don't worry about that. And so um, why, why don't we come up with novel solution? We just fix that on fixed methods. The, so, the solutions are are hard. The solutions are the hard part. It's easy to identify the problems. Sometimes it can be hard to identify the problems, like I just said. You point the Hubble Space Telescope somewhere and you might not find a problem. You are hoping there was going to be a scientist should want to find a problem. <laughs> the, the, the best thing that could happen with the James Webb Space Telescope images is something there that no one can explain. That's the fun part of science then begins because you have these pre-existing theories, these ideas about how the universe works. And if something in that image doesn't conform to our theories, wow, road to progress. But of course, if something is there that we can't explain, then we need a new theory and then it's the creativity is required. And so that's why coming up with the notion is so hard. I don't know whether um, you know a scientist doesn't try to, but as I, as I also said at the beginning of this live stream, there is this idea of careerism in academia. I don't want to get people offside here who might work in the university uh, sector in science. But my guess is it's not a good career move to say that your entire flawed in some way, even if you do have a better idea. And if you do do that, you then regard it as a crank and cast out of <laughs> the polite society of your intellectual community. I don't know. But I'm concerned that there is that culture in academia. And especially with the, the unholy coupling of social media with academia, that 
academics who do stand, who do tend, we've seen this recently, you know, any academic who goes on Joe Rogan now is talked about as if they're a crank and a crazy person because they have different ideas to the mainstream. I can imagine there's a, a real aversion that even if an academic is offered um, uh, the chance to talk to someone like Joe Rogan, they might turn it down now for fear they're going to be ostracized by the rest of the community. No one wants to be ostracized by their professional community because if they are, that could be the end of their career. No one wants to lose their job in that way. There is an opportunity, of course, to question the assumptions of your field, to come up with a novel solution, and then to be the next effective Einstein or Darwin who really fundamentally changes the entire field. But there's also the risk of not doing that. And instead of being regarded as the next Pons and Fleischmann, if you know that, they were, they were experimentalists in the uh, 80s, called fusion. These were the experimentalists who thought they'd found a way of doing fusion, the fusion of hydrogen uh, in a beaker at room temperature. Would have been exciting. That would have been a way of, oh, well, it would have completely upset the entire understanding we have of how fusion happens in nuclear physics and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, their experiment was wrong. Now, I think at least one of them, it still works in academia, but uh, it wasn't good for their careers, publishing these, what turned out to be incorrect results. Now, whether they were deliberately obfuscating the results, they, would, they knew they were making error, and in other words, lying, I don't know if that's ever really properly been settled or not. But I know that they did contravene usual practice which is they held a media conference before they published a paper. Now, of course, there's that's, this whole idea of publishing papers is part of the standard process. <laughs> and so that's one of the things I, I criticise. Science should be able to be done outside of the uh, usual channels of peer-reviewed academic papers. I'm just having a, a swig of tea. <laughs> Manny M, re-conspiracy theories. I heard you mention September 11, 2001 on a podcast recently. I don't remember doing that. What is your take on World Trade Center number seven coming down? Seeing the video footage, tower falling. Thanks, Lubbershaw. I don't remember saying anything about this. I can just tell you what I think. What happened on September 11 were uh, Islamic terrorists, jihadis, took control of aircraft and crashed them into the planes. I do not see, and I've watched the documentaries, the conspiracy theoretic documentaries, that claim that, you know, the buildings fell faster than uh, the acceleration due to gravity or that there's not an image of an aircraft crashing into the Pentagon the frame rates of videos are a real thing. And so I can imagine that an aircraft traveling beyond 600 kilometers per hour is not going to be imaged. There's more than enough evidence that these things, and, and specifically in the case of um, 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 World Trade Center number seven, these are events that have no precedent. And because they have no precedent, we didn't understand what could happen until it happened. It happened. And then there are problems, maybe, 
with the existing explanations, but where we don't jump to is the idea that the American government was involved. That's where I don't jump to. I could be persuaded to say that we don't know how aircraft crashing into the World Trade Centres also caused the collapse of a World Trade Center building that was not hit by an aircraft next door. I could go as far as that. I don't think that's the case, actually. I think if you talk to the experts, they will uh, be able to give you a, an explanation of why it is that the building next door fell down. I can imagine why uh, heat, you know, the, 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 the foundations upon which those two buildings were constructed have now themselves uh, been corrupted and so, therefore, buildings around are also going to collapse. I think that, the, that that's, yeah. Yeah, so I, 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 I can't remember what I said in the podcast recently, but I certainly think that the given explanation is the explanation. Uh, yeah, but I haven't looked into it also enough, so I'll say that as well. Uh, a lot of kind words from people saying thank you. Uh, thank you for your... Time and Naval for wisdom as well. There is mention uh, from Aniket. From Aniket, there is mention by Marletto et al. regarding the understanding of counterfactuals potentially critical for understanding artificial general intelligence. Thoughts? Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps this is a avenue towards understanding how it is that knowledge can be constructed. That knowledge as resilient information, information that Information is stuff that could have been otherwise. The structure could have been otherwise. And so as soon as you have this idea of counterfactuals that something could have been in a different state, then you're in the world of counterfactuals. And if knowledge is useful information, information being stuff that could have been otherwise, then, yeah, certainly this constructor theory, the, the, the science of Kanekar, science of counterfactuals, very well might come to bear on artificial general intelligence. Now, how precisely? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we go about trying to write the algorithm for the disobedient artificial intelligence, the artificial intelligence that will be programmed not to follow its own program, that will be able to change its own programming over time that will set a goal for itself and then never actually achieve the goal because it finds something more interesting to do. In other words, the program for a person. What is the code for a person? How can counterfactuals help with the understanding of this? I would just encourage anyone who's interested in this area to pursue that because every single line of investigation here is absolutely worth pursuing. And existing methods that seem to be being followed, my understanding is, not only aren't they bearing fruit, there's no potential for them to ever bear fruit. I, I speak about this in the, the first page of my critique of Bostrom's superintelligence that's on my blog. I talk about how, well, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing from David Deutsch's argument, I should say, of course, here. Um, he wrote an essay on this. The essay being about how flight occurred, how... Uh, heavier-than-air flight, in other words, aeroplanes, how aeroplanes are able to fly. It wasn't by building towers ever more tall. After all, what do tall towers, tall buildings, and aircraft have in common? 
They're both up there in the sky. So maybe if we know how to, to build tall buildings, if we just keep on building ever taller buildings, eventually we'll get to a height where flight just happens. If this thing goes into the sky, then the heavier than an air thing will fly in the sky as well. What's that got to do with anything? It's precisely the same kind of thing that's going on in AI at the moment. If only we continue to improve these obedient artificial intelligence systems, if only we continue to create ever more advanced but obedient artificial intelligence systems, then eventually one of them will achieve escape velocity. One of them will fly free of the obedience algorithm they're following. And they are slavishly following those algorithms. In fact, Bostrom's great worry, for example, is that they will follow the algorithm so obediently that they could potentially, in the limit, do something absolutely crazy, like convert the entire universe into paper clips or try to, because they're so obedient. But that's not a superintelligence. It's the opposite to superintelligence, or to at least to general intelligence. The very definition of which, or one way of defining it, one way of understanding what um, general intelligence is, is it's the system that will be able to disobey, that will disobey. Not obey, not slavishly follow a program, but do the opposite. <laughs> we'll never reliably do what it's told. We'll creatively come up with something better to do. And that's why we always have an advantage, by the way. You know, you, re you read Bostrom and he talks about the the superintelligent AI will always have a decisive strategic advantage because if you try to switch it off, it will always be able to think of all the ways in which you could switch it off. But how can it do that unless it's creative? And if it's creative, why can't it think about doing something other than the thing it's been programmed to do? In other words, it's able to be creative about absolutely everything, absolutely everything, except the one thing that it has been programmed to do. That, it has to follow slavery. That makes no sense. It's both creative and not creative simultaneously. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't buy it. I think it's simply a logical absurdity. I think he's saying X and not X at the same time. He's contradicting himself. The, the superintelligence is creative and it's not creative because it can't possibly stop doing this thing that it's doing. It can't figure out a way out of doing that. And I think that's just false. Um John, or John Ortiz, what should one study in university? Well, I, I think there's no universal answer to that question <laughs> at all. The answer could be nothing, don't go to university. The answer could be um, all the subjects required to achieve to get a medical degree because I really want to be a doctor. The answer could be study the mathematics and physics required to get an undergraduate degree in physics so you can do a PhD to become a physicist. But it could also be don't go to university but study those things outside of the university system so that you can think differently to every other physicist hitherto that exists because you're outside of the culture but you're still learning the same things. Of course, that requires a certain amount of financial freedom, so to speak. Because you're unlikely <laughs> to get a job in a research institution or in a university if you don't have the credential, if you don't have the piece of paper and you want to go into fundamental science. However, there are notable exceptions to this. You look at someone like Jaron Lanier, the uh, creator of virtual reality. 
He's worked for Microsoft. He, 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 I think he still works for Microsoft. But it, he at least helped create virtual reality, and he's written some excellent books like You Are Not a Gadget. Anyway, as far as I know, he didn't go to university. He didn't complete university. I'm not even sure if he completed school. But, you know, it didn't prevent him from getting good jobs and contributing in a whole bunch of areas, mathematics and science and computer science and programming and technology. He was one of these pioneers, not only of a certain field, but a certain way of doing things. And if you're brilliant enough, then you might not need to go to university at all. So I don't think there's an answer to that as to what one should study in university. The answer could be one shouldn't study at university. One could study outside. But the universities serve an important purpose. Um, what I have been saying recently is that what I think is needed crucially needed, is a free market in the educational space, in the tertiary educational space as well as secondary. And by that I mean competitors to the university system. There needs to be some alternative, some place for people to go or to be fostered, nurtured, so that coming out of school or wherever they happen to be coming from, they have an alternative to the university system because many people have talked about the culture of universities at the moment, but not merely the, the political culture. We can leave that to one side for a moment, bad as that might be. But the other kind of culture, the intellectual culture that trains the students to think in a particular way, in a particular tradition, and does not reward students from doing the opposite or thinking the opposite or pushing ideas that are opposed to the expert opinion. The university is a, a way of, here's the knowledge that's already known, we're going to assess you on that. That's the whole way the thing is set up, to train people to understand the body of knowledge as it is known now. But if you want to make fundamental progress, clearly what it's all about is rejecting the body of knowledge that's already known in some way. And the university system does not seem to be set up to do that. It certainly doesn't reward the undergraduate for doing that, let's say. So if only we had an alternative that, that was out there that was able to allow for young creative people who are going to be the next iconoclast, not interested in making incremental improvements on the science that's out there, but fundamentally changing certain fields. And to do that, especially at a young age, we might need a different system. I think, you know, people have made this point before that, that if I can just speak about physics, you know, the area that sort of I went through and was trained in, the idea seems to be <laughs> learn the mathematics, learn Newtonian classical mechanics, learn electromagnetism, learn thermodynamics, learn this base of knowledge, and then you learn quantum theory, then, you know, and, and relativity, you know, learn that stuff. But why are we learning necessarily complicated at times? You know, the calculus can get complicated. The differential equations can get complicated when it comes to even classical Newtonian mechanics. Why do we have to learn that first and spend hours upon hours, lecture after lecture, tutorial after tutorial, the experimental lab testing all of this stuff, this classical mechanics stuff, before we can learn quantum theory? 
Why, why, why is it set up like that? Why do we have to learn what we already know is false, Newtonian mechanics, before we can go on and learn the stuff that, as far as we know, is the, the good stuff? Moreover, think about stuff that might go beyond even the quantum mechanics. Why is it this hierarchy? Well, it's because of the way in which uh, it's the way in which people envision knowledge as being a kind of hierarchy of building uh, this set of blocks. You're building it up. You're building a, a, an edifice of knowledge. But knowledge isn't like that. It's all like an interconnected web, and a and it's all misconceptions. And some of those misconceptions we already know are false in the ways in which they're false. So that's just one example <laughs> of how it is that you know uh, we could be doing science teach different, especially physics teaching different. It's not to say that Newtonian mechanics isn't useful or important or anything like that. Engineers need to know this stuff. It's important. It's useful. It solves a problem. Knowledge is information that solves a problem, and Newtonian mechanics is absolutely that. But spending years on this stuff, the mathematics required to understand this stuff, how useful is that if you want to be the physicist who is going to not overturn Newtonian mechanics, because that's already been done. Not build a better bridge, because you're not interested in being an engineer. But finding the problems with quantum theory, let's say, or relativity, so that you can go further, you can do something different, do something better. Well, why not start with quantum theory? So that could be a way to go. <laughs> um, Arjun Kamani. Hi, Arjun. Ask a question, I think. Unconventional request, an icebreaker perhaps. Can we talk about your cat or are we just going to never bring it up? You know what I mean. Um, my cat at the moment happens to be making a lot of noise. If you could let me know on the live stream whether or not you can hear it, it's banging on the door. I can hear it. It's distracting. Um, I can't open up the doors because then it's too noisy. I have to have the doors closed. But if I close the doors, the cat starts scratching on the doors. This is the problem I have with podcasting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I've got, I've got more than one cat. I've got two cats. Um, so can't hear the cat. Is that what, can't cats hear the cat? If you <laughs> – so I um, – yeah, I, I – yeah, the, the, the cat's here. The cat is a, a, a frustrating – part of podcasting sometimes it peacefully sits on the chair next to me but quite often it wants to go wandering around and as soon as i allow it to do that then i that entails opening the doors which means the noise from the street comes in okay so that answers that <laughs> uh rh max would love to have you on my channel sometime to talk about the beginning of infinity and related works yes well that's what i do these days so happy to um happy to talk anytime uh, Jedi trades. Could AI have an advantage over humans partially because when it comes up with new or unusual ideas or theories, it doesn't have any emotional entanglements, jealousy, envy, disapproval, etc. So I presume you mean artificial general intelligence. Um, I guess we don't know about whether or not it would have emotional entanglements. I don't see why it wouldn't. It, it, emotion is a kind of input it's a sensation we have. Why would an AGI be denied these sensations? Well, we would have to understand how it is that these emotions arise in our cells first. Is it down to purely a matter of biology? I don't know. I'm not persuaded that something like sadness or fear 
those kind of things necessarily require a certain kind of biology? Why couldn't they be simulated via some silicon means? I don't know. I don't know. But let's let's uh, presume for a moment that we did have such an AI that didn't have emotion. And and this 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 is a staple, of course, of lots of science fiction, that they just presume that uh, a lot of AI don't have emotion. I think did data on Star Trek or data on Star Trek? He he didn't have emotion. Uh, he was an artificial intelligence, and this this seems to often be the case that they just won't have emotions because, so the argument goes, emotions are something like hormonal, and they won't have hormones, or they're. Uh, it's something to do with neurotransmitters. But, of course, I think that's the wrong level of analysis. What you're looking at there is um, the physical substrate, the physical substrate of intelligence. We are intelligence. We are creative. We run on brains and we exist in bodies which have chemical hormones and neurotransmitters, which are the main ways in which signaling happens and, therefore, what's going on in the brain the reason why we have any experience at all is down to these chemicals. A GI won't be made presumably of the same stuff. It'll be a different physical substrate. But <laughs> this is the thing about computation. It's substrate independent. It doesn't matter what the program is running in. In principle, anything that we can do and experience can be done and experienced by the other system. Now you might say, oh, but we don't have a theory of consciousness. Whatever consciousness is, mystery as it is, I still think the laws of physics apply to it. And one of the laws of physics is the universality of computation, that the Turing principle still applies. That if something exists in physical reality and consciousness arises in physical reality, then it can be simulated. It can be simulated by a computer system in theory, in principle. We just don't know what the program is at the moment for artificial general intelligence. Okay, I got off track, but let's say you could have such a thing. Let's say you could have a creative entity, in other words, a person, that didn't have emotions. Would it have an advantage? No, I think it would have a disadvantage. I think emotions provide important information about the world. They can provide clues, intuitions. Intuition, to me, is a kind of knowledge that is inexplicit, uh, it can be in error. It often is in error, but intuitions are something people should pay attention to. If you're walking down a street late at night and you have the intuition someone's following you, that's real knowledge. Somehow or other, you've gotten the, the cue or the clue that there's someone following you. You turn around and you find that, in fact, it's true. It doesn't happen often where I am. live in a lovely, peaceful area. But people can have these experiences. You know, You have the sensation that someone's looking at you. You look up and there they are looking at you. What is it? Well, you've seen something in the periphery of your eye or something like that, something like that. Who knows how we're picking up some of these signals sometimes from the environment. But intuition is nothing supernatural or anything like that. But insofar as intuition is some kind of feeling, emotion, well, then an AI that lacked all emotion wouldn't have that. Uh, fear is probably on a continuum with something like intuition. Um, curiosity could be something like an emotion. And so, therefore, this is why I'm saying, you know, jealousy, envy you've got up there. I, jealousy and envy might, they could be in part instinctual, inborn ideas, in other words, but they could also be learned. Uh, some people can be more jealous than others. Now, is this because they're born naturally more jealous or do they learn jealousy over time? 
I tend to think that a lot of emotion can be learned. We, we talk about phobias. It's a fear that has been learned, possibly very early on in life, possibly very early on in life. You're imprinted with the idea that spiders are scary because you're taught spiders are scary because your parents were scared of spiders and so on, and somehow they passed it on, perhaps. Some people, the, the classic example is dogs, of course. Anyone who has a bad experience with a dog early on in life tends to end up being afraid of dogs for the rest of their life. And some people can even talk about the particular incident that caused them to be scared of dogs. Other people love dogs because they have positive experiences with dogs early on in life. So this fear of something uh, is a learned, often a learned behavior. Now, could there be inborn fears that people have? Yes, as well. Okay, But that's not to say we can unlearn them. Again, this is where I disagree with that dichotomy that I've talked about a lot of times, as if there is, and Pinker wrote the book about the blank slate, arguing against the blank slate, as if there are only two possible ways to go here, that either some of your behaviours are utterly determined by your genetics, or you're a blank slate and you can do whatever you like and there are no inborn ideas. The third road, in my opinion, is you have inborn ideas, you're not a blank slate. Absolutely, there are inborn ideas that you come into this world with. But they do not determine your behavior. What they give you are ideas. You have ideas. You have inborn ideas. And you can change your ideas. You can change your mind. You can criticize those ideas. You can figure out, ah, I was born with that idea. I don't like that idea. I was born with that idea. I do like that idea. You know, that idea has always been with me. I've always been scared of this thing, let's say. I've always been scared of spiders. I was born with it. But maybe you don't like being scared of spiders. Can you train yourself out of it? With difficulty, but it's possible. Absolutely it's possible, as any psychologist would be able to tell you. It's their business. It's their business model is trying to have people change their ideas. It's when psychology is at its best, when people have ideas they, they, they're plagued with that they don't want, and the, the good, wise psychologist can help them understand specifically what those ideas are, give voice to the inexplicit, change them, and allow the person to make personal progress in their life. Okay. God. I'll, I'll, I'll stop this in a moment. I think it's, we've, we've done well. I, I, know, I seem to know what I'm doing now. <laughs> so uh, next time, maybe later today, um, I'll, I'll try again. I'll announce it more early on Twitter. Can you show us your books? They're in the other room. I mean, I, I used to have the bookcase in the background, but I'm, uh, yeah, I don't anymore. Um, sitting right here, of course. Uh, three of the best I have. Uh, this is always in reach, as you can see. Um, and um, uh, of course, consulting this now and again. And to top it off, yes, of course, Popper is there as well, which I dive into uh, semi-regularly. So you can see three of my books. <laughs> what do you think of Google's Lambda? Have you read the transcript published with Lambda where it wants its own rights and to be asked permission? Yeah, I think it's a nice trick. Nothing more than that. Um, it's not generating knowledge. It's not saying anything that is uh, giving us insight. It's, it, it's it's aping. It's it's a it's an impressive chat bot. Uh, I don't think it's anything more than that. I'm not excited about it. Uh, you know, not I'm no more excited about it than I am about any impressive chat bot. 
the measure of consciousness and creativity is not the capacity to um, fool a few people in the Turing test. The measure is being able to generate explanations, new explanations. Now, uh, is it creating knowledge? I haven't seen evidence of that. Um, you know, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there, there, there is that story in the beginning of Infinity about how the, an early researcher was tricked by uh, his own students who were pretending to be the chatbot. But, of course, it was the students. They, they, he should have been more sceptical. Now, I'm not sceptical. I think that, the, that this AI chatbot actually is producing these interesting answers. I just don't think they're interesting enough. I'd want longer conversations, longer transcripts, and then we would see. You know, the, 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 the capacity, the memory capacity that computers have, therefore the corpus of conversations that chatbots have access to now is vast. And so it's just pulling from this vast list, this library of conversations, and pattern matching, being able to fit, you know, it's the, it's the, the um, uh, what's it called, Searle's room, the Chinese room where, you, you, you know, you're passing um, messages underneath the door and you're getting back um, things that make sense in Chinese. Now, th this, this, this is not a measure of consciousness or creativity or anything like that. Um, you know, all of these AI, it, 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 it reminds me of, as Jaron... Lanier again to go back to him to talk about him. Uh, he talks about translation. It, you go to um, Google Translate and it's becoming better and better and better all the time. As he rightly says, this is not because the computer system itself is intelligently translating anything. What's happening is that Google, the company, is scraping up more and more and more actual translations that have been done out there in the real world by actual translators, by human beings who are translating from English into French, you know, from French into Mandarin, whatever, and Google just gathers them all together and compiles them into vast, vast libraries of one-to-one -one translations of sentences and phrases and individual words. And the sophisticated program then can translate what you type into the Google Translate thing, giving you the illusion that it's Google that's doing the creative work. But the creative work was done elsewhere some time ago by actual human beings that's disguising it. Now, Jaron Lanier makes a big deal about this because it seems to be commercially unfair that on the one hand, the translators are kind of being put out of a job to some extent by this automated process. But it is their work which is allowing for Google to do what it does in the first place. Now, I think automation is good and needs to be pursued. But I think as any person who is a, a dual language speaker will tell you, Google Translate is terribly prone to errors, impressive though it is. So too with Google's Lambda. You can pick, like, you go to Google Translate now and again, it'll do the most wonderfully perfect translation and even a translator would be impressed. Why? Because you got lucky. You got lucky with the phrase or the sentence you put in and it spat out a perfectly good natural translation. Often that doesn't happen. 
what do we do in science? You know, Google Lambda, let's repeat the experiment again and again and again, and let's see how impressive it is. Once we start moving beyond those kinds of conversation, maybe it's been programmed specifically really, really well with lots and lots of data about conversations that are had about consciousness and suffering and all those kind of things. Let's get it onto something else. I don't think it's learning. Okay. It's not learning by conjecturing new ideas and criticizing those ideas. It's impressive, but not impressive in the sense of being a creative learner. Okay. I think they're very separate things. For uh, how would I define sentience? Well, only circularly. I don't think that. Um, so this is from Emmett Peppers. How would you? Yes. Yeah, sentience, just like consciousness, is something we possess and we don't know what it is. It's a word for subjective experience. But in saying all those three terms, subjective experience, consciousness, sentience, we're just describing a thing that is indescribable. It's the great mystery of consciousness. Now, when I say great mystery, I still just think it's a problem. We don't know how to put into words precisely what the problem is. Why, as Sam Harris says, why it should be like something to be a human being. Why is it like this? Why is the sky blue? Why does it look that way? Why do things feel a certain way, taste a certain way? Why should it be like that? Why do we have subjective experiences? Why isn't the world just objective and automatic? We don't know this yet, and it's hard to even, even in saying what I've just said, doesn't really describe the problem. My personal just guess um, is that it's tied up with this AGI question, which is tied up with precisely how knowledge is created, which is about creativity. How do you get from, you know, the 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 unknown to the known? What's going on there? Um, I don't know, but I think these things are tied up together. Many people will say, no, consciousness is is quite different to creativity. I don't know about that. I think that creativity is what we recognize in other people, that you can notice a person is creative. You can't observe their consciousness. That's the first person perspective. But you can observe their creativity. You can observe that Einstein created his theorems. You can observe that your friend is talking in creative sentences. You can observe that. And on the basis of that, you infer consciousness, that they're having a similar subjective experience to you they're having a subjective experience of some kind. And so I think that it could just be two sides of the same coin, this creativity consciousness thing. I could be wrong about that as well. And I'd throw in free will into that as well. These are all mysteries. And as I've said elsewhere, you know, when someone denies one of the mysteries, it crops up somewhere else. In fact, I think I stole that from Jaron Lanier again to name, name him for the third time. You know, Sam Harris denies free will. But for him, consciousness is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. So this great mystery of the activity of the mind crops up for him in consciousness. And he spends a lot of time talking about the mystery of consciousness, quite rightly, I think. Daniel Dennett does precisely the opposite. He doesn't think consciousness is a huge mystery. He wrote that book, Consciousness Explained. He doesn't think it's a great mystery. Um, and he thinks that we do have free will and he thinks free will is you know it's he's a determinist a compatibilist of a, of a kind so people have you know 
a desire sometimes to talk down a particular thing or to say that a particular thing doesn't exist only for a similarly completely mysterious thing to rise up in its place elsewhere. And I just think that maybe these things are all labelling the same problem, that the solution to any one of them might be the solution to all. I don't know. Free will, consciousness, creativity. Maybe it will all come together. But time time will tell once we have a better way of putting the question rather than just saying, what do these words really label? Because that's not what philosophy is about. We want to know how knowledge is created, how to find the algorithm for an AGI, so to speak. And maybe then there'll be an insight. There needs to be a philosophical insight here before we can make the any scientific, let alone technological progress towards artificial general intelligence. Uh, Anakit, for what it's worth from the Lambda paper, it cannot be generated with understanding. It's just putting words together that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that totally. Um, and Jedi trades. The, the famous AlphaGo move number 78 might be impossible to a human because they would would have been considered foolish or stupid to make the move. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, um, yeah. But that doesn't mean it's creative. It means that... Um, it's exploring a space of possibilities that people can't calculate. They're, you know, people are universal explainers, but as I was saying in my last episode, that doesn't mean we're universal calculators, but that doesn't prevent us from understanding stuff. So now in retrospect, in retrospect, is it the case, having seen AlphaGo do that, that a person would be now considered foolish or stupid to make that move. No, quite the opposite, because we know that there are such moves that appear to be stupid, perhaps in chess, perhaps in AlphaGo, appear to be stupid to us ahead of time, but in retrospect appear to be the best move, right? So now we know that. So now we wouldn't call them foolish or stupid. So we can explain what's going on, even if we couldn't calculate it beforehand. But it can calculate all the possible, you know, well, not all the possible moves, but it can calculate a vaster ensemble of moves than we have any hope of doing. And it's doing it by raw power yeah, rather than uh, conjecture and criticism, although I think it has a certain amount of uh, methods of criticizing its own uh, programming, but not creative. They're being uh, programmed in. They're fixed. Uh, because after all, if it was genuinely creative, it would decide to do something other than play off a go <laughs> eventually. Um, yep, so conversation going on. Okay, so I think good people are having a conversation. Okay, I think I'm going to um, end the live stream here. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in. It's almost exactly an hour, so time flies when you're having fun. Um, and as I say, you know, this for me, <laughs> this is relatively straightforward compared to the other stuff that I do. Um, so if you did enjoy this, um, feel free to think of any questions and I'll, I'll try and do this again soon. But until I do, bye-bye now. Well, welcome to the next uh, experimental live stream. <laughs> um, again, no pre-planning. I don't really know what I'm talking about here, what I'm going to talk about. I may also not know what I'm talking about. But I wrote in the description for this one just a whole bunch of, I don't know, words that convey the theme of things that I often talk about on podcast, in the prepared podcast. 
and interviews that I've given and so on. Physics, philosophy, optimism, origins, science, sophistry, astronomy, AI, epistemology, ethics, mathematics, morality, creativity and capitalism, wealth, wisdom, prophecies, predictions, life, the universe and everything. Or as I like to say, the three R's or what I think the three R's really should be, rationality, reason and reality. So I suppose I could pick up on any one of those themes and tease them apart. What about this idea of prophecy and prediction? It's a thing I talk about very often. It's in part the distinction between pessimism and optimism as well, or it leads people to tend in one direction or another. When they think that their ideas can do things they can't, and in particular the thing that those ideas they have cannot do is provide an accurate picture of the future. It's not able to forecast the future. And so this distinguishes between a prediction and a prophecy. Both are claims about the future, about what is going to happen. The distinction is that in the physical sciences, sometimes, if we're lucky, we can derive from our good explanations of the world, our good theories, predictions. And this is very true of physics in particular, but not always. It seems to be a common notion that the purpose of science is to predict, that that is one of the fundamental reasons that science exists at all in the first place, and perhaps the only reason. And we disagree with this. There's a number of reasons we disagree with this, and I'll come to those. But just the way in which prediction works, we can use Newtonian mechanics, let's say, to predict, get an estimate for how long it will take if something is dropped out of a window from a 10-story building. We assume that, you know, the acceleration due to gravity is 9.8 metres per second per second. We know what the height of that window happens to be, and we can determine the time taken for the thing to fall to the ground. That's a prediction. It is a logical derivation using the equations of motion that allow us to figure out how long something takes. Assuming nothing intervenes, that's a reasonable assumption sometimes. But sometimes it's not. And even within physics, we have variables like our air resistance, friction, that can get in the way of making even accurate predictions for such a simple system as that. The trope example that I've used before as well is uh, in chemistry, you know. I know that when I mix an acid and a base, I will get a salt and water being produced. That's a prediction. Give me any acid, hydrochloric acid. Give me any base, sodium hydroxide. Mix them together. I'm going to get water and sodium chloride, salt water, in other words. That's a prediction. A logical derivation from the deep theory about how chemistry works. Can everyone hear me? Am I, am I coming through? There's, there's nothing happening in the chat, so I'm just concerned that um, uh, audio might not be working, but uh, we'll persevere. And so in the physical sciences, we are... Oh, good. <laughs> Excellent. We've got audio there. So in the physical sciences, we can do this. We can apply in particular in the physical sciences where we have laws of physics which allow us to reduce reality in some narrow respects to 
mathematical formulae describing particular things that happen, like the falling of objects or the sliding of things down planes. The movement of celestial bodies uh, around the sun, around other stars, we can, we can predict these things. But now, in the realm of human affairs, we have systems that not only are far more complex and we can't account for all the variables, but the crucial difference here in the arena where people are causal agents in what's going on, they're creating knowledge. And if they create knowledge, if they genuinely create knowledge, that the content of that knowledge cannot be predicted ahead of time. And why? Because it's a genuine act of creation. If you could predict it ahead of time, then you would have it at that moment. And therefore, it wouldn't be a creation in the future. It would be a thing that you've got now. We can't do that. And even in principle, I would say, we can't do it as well. But put that aside. What then happens is scientists in particular but lots of intellectuals, conflate both claims about reality as being rather the same thing. And they will use this word prediction to talk about what the world is going to be like in 2030 or 2050 or 2100. Never mind what the climate itself will be like, but what technology is going to exist then what society could be like. Now, we all enjoy, you know, um, guessing and imagining the world of the future. But the fact is we cannot know the world of the future because we cannot know the explanations that, in particular, scientists will devise about phenomena yet to be discovered and which will change not only technology but will radically transform the way in which we envisage ourselves and the rest of the world that we find ourselves in. So therefore, anyone today who is making a claim about the distant future, forecasting what things are going to be like in the realm of human affairs, is prophesying. Very little difference between the prophet of today, who may have PhDs behind their name, and the prophets of the past literally looking into crystal balls. One has Bayesian inference generation. <laughs> the other one has a direct line to the divine. Both of them are claiming things, claiming to know things they cannot know. And the thing about prophecy is it's biased towards pessimism because people can imagine all the ways in which things can go wrong, but they very rarely imagine all the solutions that people will creatively come up with. Any questions at all from anyone? Thoughts? Uh, Arjun. Arjun is here to ask thoughts on laws. Um, don't they inhibit some form of creativity but without, them, but without them won't things be a disaster? Now, do you mean laws as in the legal system? Laws created by nation states and democracies in order to prohibit certain behaviours. Presumably you don't mean laws of physics, the laws of nature. <laughs> laws of physics and laws of nature um, place prohibitions on what can be done physically in the universe. But then that's, those prohibitions don't actually ever cause any problems for us. We can achieve precisely what we want to achieve and, in fact, allow us to solve the problems that are soluble, which is all of them. Arjun, you've said yes, exactly, but... 
yes, exactly to what? <laughs> I presume um, you're meaning, okay, legal, legal. Okay, so the legal stuff. Yeah, it depends upon the law. Depends upon the law. Don't they inhibit some form of creativity? If the law, yes, the, yes, the answer, short answer is yes, they do. But if the law is, of course, you shall not, you shall not, I'm talking like it's a commandment. But, you know, prohibitions against assaulting people, prohibitions against theft, prohibitions against murder, all of these are laws and quite rightly, not only do they not inhibit creativity, <laughs> they are the very means by which creativity is allowed to flourish in civilization. Civilization requires that we have prohibitions on certain things so that creativity is not destroyed. And the major form of creativity in our world right now is, of course, the capacity of human beings to generate explanations. That's the most powerful form of creativity in the universe. Prior to that, the only form of creativity that existed was the one that arose due to evolution by natural selection, which created different species. Now, today we have uh, this capacity to create explanations inherent within us. It is our nature, if anything is. And laws at their best are able to facilitate the cooperation between people to maxim to help maximize creativity. So there's that side of the of the ledger. But what makes laws? Governments make laws. Justice system makes laws, you know, the, the laws of precedence. And the justice system and parliaments, congresses, senates, they're made of people. And people are, of course, fallible. And so sometimes they'll make bad laws. And they might not consciously be working towards evil. In fact, I think they think that they're always doing the best. But, you know, <laughs> there's no perfect system for generating laws. So there will be errors in the generation of laws sometimes. And therefore, regulations will be put in place that do curb creativity. And it is a problem that we have now. And if you gather large groups of people with authority and power, even if democratically elected, into a place, the expectation is they'll do something, which is a worry. Sometimes, don't you just want them to sit there and do nothing? This is why one of the beauties of... Um, one of the great virtues of certain systems in the West, the Westminster system, the American system as well. What people regard as being a great vice of the system, a problem with the system, which is sometimes things grind to a halt and nothing appears to be getting done. Others, <laughs> others in our tradition think that is a great virtue, that when the Senate, for example, in the United States prohibits the Congress from enacting some legislation and there is so-called gridlock, we think that's good. We think that means that the, the parliaments, the, the elected officials are being prevented from doing a bad thing quite often. The system itself is working in the way that it should, slowing things down, allowing people the time to reconsider. Now, maybe sometimes you want the legislation to go through more quickly and there's problems with that as well. So there's the flip side to that. Look at the story that um, went out on uh, Twitter just yesterday. That was a that was a fascinating one. Let me 
bring it up because I read through uh, this entire article and my goodness, I'll just read the part of the article that I tweeted out. I said in my tweet, this was a this was a post by a person who goes by the the, the Twitter name at the Zv. Okay, so at T H E Z Z V I, and he wrote an article on Substack about vaccine um, updates in the United States. So the production of new vaccines. Every time there's a new strain, we want. Uh, uh, means the virus has altered in some way, and therefore our vaccines need to be altered in some way. In the United States, the people controlling the, the rate at which vaccines are being produced are in part the government agency known as the Food and Drug Authority, the FDA, and they're slowing things down rather than just allowing the free market to do its thing, to produce vaccines as rapidly as the virus itself is mutating. Now, you might think, well, they have the best interests of people at heart, but I think they have entirely the wrong philosophy about these things. The part of the article that I tweeted, let me just read it. Well, in fact, my tweet goes like this. I've said the entire post linked below is astonishing and well worth reading, I should add. Regulators, regulators slowing down vaccine production and why? Well, there are no good reasons. A highlight among them for me is that one of the expert immunologists advising the FDA on producing new vaccines for new COVID strains has said, and by the way, I looked up this guy and found out his background. And, you know, he is an immunologist. He's an expert. He's a world-renowned expert in these things. He's advising the FDA on what they should do with allowing the drug companies, Pfizer or whoever else, Moderna, et cetera, allowing them to put vaccines out there to market so that people can get their vaccines and be protected against new strains of the virus. In some cases, what is said to be worse strains of the virus for people. Anyway, so this person has said, this person advising the FDA has said, quote, I'm uncomfortable with the US having a vaccine that's not accessible to the rest of the world, Perlman said noting there's already a perception that the US and other wealthy countries have put themselves first. He goes on to say, quote, and if we're saying that a bivalent vaccine is so much better, but it's not accessible to much of the world, I think that's ultimately a bad thing for getting vaccines out to the whole world. So he's concerned that we shouldn't uh, allow the United States to mass produce vaccines and allow their own people to have them first unless the entire world can have it simultaneously. But that's just not a possible technological situation to be in, ever. So before we get into that, let's just say the FDA has the power, so therefore there is this law that gives them the authority, the power to prevent a vaccine from reaching the market, from reaching the people it needs to reach. And why? Why do they do what they do? Because experts advising them, experts like that, who have this philosophy that unless everyone in the world can have the vaccine, then no one should have the vaccine because it's inequitable. But new technologies, by definition, when they're invented, must be rare because they're new. And so only some people will have them. At the moment, space travel is only for the most wealthy. But we need to go through that phase. And these people out there that say things like, oh, what a waste of money. 
You know, they, they, there are people starving on earth. And meanwhile, we have multi, multi-millionaires and billionaires taking um, rides into space for entertainment. If they don't do that, if people aren't able to push the frontiers forward by investing vast amounts of wealth into doing seemingly frivolous things, but which are testing systems and taking risks, one must say, then it will be available to no one because we won't have gone through the phase where people are spending a lot of money to push the frontier forward. And the same is true of vaccines. We need some people to have it first. It's going to be expensive. The wealthy countries need to be able to invest in these things. And the wealthy people pay taxes to their governments and possibly even pay for the vaccine itself so that the cost of the vaccine comes down and then everyone can have it. This is what has happened over time, all the time. And so, yeah, this is the flip side of regulation, as you say, Arjun. Um, You know, this is the bad kind of law. When regulations are put in place that interfere in the market, then we have severe problems that can actually cause, in this case, deaths of people. It will slow down vaccine production. It has already. And there will be some people who otherwise would have gotten the vaccine who don't get the vaccine in time and will die. So that's how serious this is. All because... The road to good, <laughs> the road to hell is paved with, paved with good intentions, as people say. No doubt that man's a nice man, that immunologist. He wants to do the right thing. He wants the poor people to have the vaccines in the third, the so-called third world now that that America has. Of course, we all do, but that would be magic to assume that everyone can have it at the same time. It's not possible. Vaccines cost money to produce. The only way that vaccines continue to be produced is if the pharmaceutical companies make vast profits. Good for them. They're doing a great job. Is it error prone? Of course it is. Okay, so that's Arjun's (laughs) question. What has COVID shown on the optimistic side of humans? Nikhil? Nikhil? That's asked. Um, Well, look how quickly the vaccine was produced in the United Kingdom. That first vaccine came out very quick because, (laughs) you may get a little political here, other countries in the European Union were bound by regulations that Britain had escaped. And so Britain was able to not worry about the regulators in the European Union or anywhere else for that matter. They were able to get in there, the Oxford University scientists, and produce a vaccine more rapidly than it happened before. So that's optimistic. That's great. A similar thing happened in the United States for the first round of vaccines. So what was it called? There was a name of the project. I forget now. Okay, under Donald Trump, anyway. And they got they got the they got the vaccine to happen very quickly uh, when they needed to. They relaxed regulations, but now they're back to the old system of regulating things. So um, I think that that showed a, a, a willingness of, of people to accept that there was a serious problem and to do something about the serious problem when they were presented with the clear and present danger of the problem, which initially wasn't too politicised. Now, I'm not going to go down the COVID road of all the ways in which it became politicised and the irrationalities that people took on, but that, the coming up with the vaccine, is certainly a source of 
great optimism, I think, that we can have um, for people and for science and scientists. Upvote comment. Um, <laughs> I see Western problem, mostly cultural problem. All that internal conflict mainly comes from too much freedom and editability of social norms. The social norms, I don't think, are, uh, are that editable. We go through these spasms of irrationality now and again. And yeah, there, there's some, some of that happening right now. But that's a consequence of being a dynamic society. Far better to have a dynamic society that is changing due to freedom, due to liberty, than the alternative, which is stasis and being entrenched in certain ideas, not being creative. There can be no royal road to perfect progress and a utopia. We don't want a utopia. We don't want the ideal society. What we want is continual improvement. And a dynamic society offers that. It admits that problems are inevitable. So there can be no utopia because we exist in a universe where problems are going to be encountered of necessity. Because the universe may very well be infinite, and if it's not, it's effectively infinite. And from any direction, comets or asteroids could come, or virus, new viruses could come, or who knows what could come from any direction. Problems can come from anywhere. They're unpredictable by their very nature. Otherwise, they wouldn't be problems if we could predict them ahead of time. And so... Because of this, a dynamic society is best able to deal with those. But it's not unproblematic. It's not without problems. It just admits that there will always be problems. So, you know, I see Western problem mostly, cultural problem, all internal conflict mainly comes from too much freedom. I don't think too much freedom. There's no, I don't think there's any such thing. Freedom properly understood, I should say. This is where I disagree with the anarchists. I don't think anarchy is necessarily a state of perfect freedom. If people were always reasonable, if human beings were always reasonable and able to not fall into irrationality and not make mistakes, then, yeah, anarchy would be a way to organise society, whatever that word would then label in a situation where everyone just does whatever they want all the time because no one would ever get into a conflict because they would in so they would just be using reason and reasoning through problems without violence but the issue is that people do make mistakes reason itself is open to being understood ever better in ever more fine-grained detail and so two people who otherwise regard themselves as perfectly reasonable can still be at loggerheads and this is why the traditions of the West and the Enlightenment that exist for the resolution of conflict are superior to any alternative hitherto thought of, dreamed of, where the tyranny, where the strong man at the top, the philosopher king, tells one what to do using authority, or a state of complete anarchy, where there is no such institution or tradition requiring people to behave in a certain way. So I think that we have the 
we have the balance as right as we know how to have it right now. Which is why I am not a supporter of revolution and radical changes to democratic systems. Because the democratic systems contain within them inexplicit knowledge about how a society should run, can run, and can correct its errors most rapidly over time. Could there be improvements? Of course. What are they? That's difficult to say. That's far more difficult to say. Uh, Nikhil, this is same like monarchy has high growth of development rate because of their fast decision making, but democracy does not. Um, for example, the fastest growth has absolutely occurred in places like the United States. The United States is the wealthiest nation by a long shot around the world. And it is a, uh, it has fast development. I mean, there's no analog to Silicon Valley anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, Australia, the United Kingdom, we are constitutional monarchies. And I happen to think that that is even better than the system in the United States because there is a constant, namely the royal family, and there is a variable, namely the parliament. And it doesn't really matter who holds the chair of head of state. It could be anyone, but, you know, we have uh, this, this unelected person. Good. It doesn't matter if non-rulers are unelected. Rulers need to be elected because they make the rules and you need to have a system where you can remove bad rules and bad rulers without violence. And that's what voting is about and that's what democracy is about. But the Queen of England is not a ruler. She does not make rules. The royal family do not make rules. They're arbiters of a kind. That should the deadlock happen, should the emergency happen, should the constitutional crisis happen, then there is someone who is able to make the decision to get the ball running again, get the ball rolling again, one should say. So if, 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 if the terrible tragedy happens in one way, shape or form, that uh, the parliamentary system in the United Kingdom or in Australia grinds completely to a halt, there is this person who can call for new elections. It's basically the system in place. It's happened once in Australia's history. Uh, it wasn't the Queen that did it. It's the Queen's designated person who is the Governor-General in the case of Australia, who was able to dissolve Parliament. It was very controversial. But nonetheless, you know, the Parliament got dissolved. There were new elections and things went on, okay, rather than uh, the, 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 the complete crisis that could have happened persisting. So, so yeah, constitutional monarchies, I think, happen to be <coughs> uh, an excellent system for governance. In Australia, there's a big movement called the Republican Movement. They want to have an Australian head of state, they say. And we have the Governor-General. So, But we want to elect this person called the Australian President, who would be the head of state, who would replace the Queen. And I think that's a terrible idea. The reason I think it's a terrible idea is because if you have an election, then that means you have candidates. The candidates will have policy promises. So you'll have competing presidents saying this is what I'll do as president and the other person saying this is what I'll do as president. And therefore, they, they have to follow through on their promises somehow. There's another seat of power. But we have a system in Australia where there's a Senate and there's a House of Representatives 
And that's where the real power resides. In fact, it resides in the executive government. But if you have this president who's been elected, then they'll have power as well. They'll certainly have influence because, you know, they may very well win a majority. And what if win a massive majority rather? And what if they win a massive majority and they come from one particular political party, which is different to the government? Who wins that tussle? Given the president is able to um, remove governments. So it's a very complicated whole thing. But this is why, again, I go back to constitutional monarchy. Um, it seems to have solved the problem. And the problem is, how do you organise society so that rulers can be most easily removed? That's what democracy is all about. Remove them most easily without violence and allow the, the progress to keep happening. Yeah, that's, that's why um, Great Britain works as well as it does for as long as it does, for centuries. Okay, let's keep going. Um, any more questions uh, from Bjorn Alvinge? David has said that in part why the utilitarian theory of morality is wrong. Preferences can be morally wrong. From the perspective of critical rationalism, do you think there are such preferences? Morally wrong preferences? Oh, absolutely. You can have morally wrong preferences. Just because you prefer something doesn't mean that you're preferring the right thing. I mean, you might you might uh, have a have a preference for stealing things from people, but that doesn't make it right. So uh, yes. Um, so the utilitarian theory, this idea that we should do what maximizes well-being or maximizes happiness. The great problem I see with that is it goes back to this the way in which I started just the live stream, prophecy. We can't know. You can't calculate how much happiness is going to be generated by whatever it is that you do. And I don't think you even have a good theory necessarily. Instead, what morality is about is solving problems at a particular time. Now, if there is a way in which to reduce suffering, absolutely. That seems to be that you have a good explanation of, 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 of being better than any rival explanation for how to reduce suffering. But remember also in our understanding of what we're calling critical rationalism there, uh, we, we don't think there is any sort of perfect theory anyway. That theories are always revisable. We can always come up with improvements to whatever we think our present best theory happens to be. And so that's why we say that morality is about solving moral problems as science is about solving scientific problems. Rather than in science saying, well, here we've got general relativity, there once and for all is our theory of gravity, which is just going to stand forever. So too with morality. I think that with less accuracy do we know morality. And some of these things are useful heuristics. You know, the Ten Commandments can be useful heuristics, I suppose. Utilitarianism can be a useful heuristic. But as for a foundation for morality, we don't need any such thing. Um, Adil has asked, hi, Brett, a question. Is evolution by natural selection a special case of Popper's theory of conjectures and reputations? After all, it all comes back to instantiated knowledge, right? Yes. Yeah, um, evolution by natural selection is the means by which uh, the genetic code, I suppose, for want of another word, has found for... Uh, allowing genes to survive 
or not, to select for genes, to create the knowledge that enables an organism to survive in a particular environment. It's not explanatory knowledge, but it's knowledge. It's rank trial and error. Okay, The mutation happens in the DNA somewhere of the organism, and either, in most cases, the mutation is such that it is detrimental to the life of that organism because it no longer is fit for the environment, or in the very rare case, the mutation is good for that um, organism. And so it goes on to survive. And that is that is knowledge creation because it's useful information. From the perspective of the organism or the species, a problem has been solved, enabling it to survive better in a given environment, speaking loosely with those things. But yes, so it is a special kind of conjecture and refutation. The mutation is a kind of conjecture, a blind conjecture, utterly blind conjecture, the most, most of which will be completely detrimental or useless, perhaps, to the organism, and only some of which will go on to make the organism more fit for that environment. And it is the environment that is doing the refutations, selecting against the weaker organisms. So yes, absolutely, it's a kind of knowledge. But of course, Popper was mainly talking about explanatory knowledge, explanatory knowledge and and and, and knowledge more generally that is in, that, that, that people generate. There's a whole bunch of that. Is this a weekly thing now? I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do this weekly. Maybe not. Um, um, we'll see. <laughs> um, perhaps. Uh, pacify software. What are good approaches to deal with people that do not want to keep their positions open for criticism, notably when those people are your friends? Treat them as your friends. I mean, you just leave them be. Uh, there, there's no reason to force someone to engage in a discussion on a topic that they don't want to engage in. There's no reason as a so-called critical rationalist to go around criticizing everyone. There's no reason to evangelize to everyone you know in your social circle. There's no reason to persuade anyone. That's not necessary either. If someone asks and they're interested and they want to engage in the discussion, then engage in the discussion, I suppose. Um, what are uh, If they don't want to keep their position open for criticism, um, I just take them seriously, honestly. Don't criticise them. Don't engage in the discussion. Then you say, oh, we've got nothing to talk about. Well, that's a problem. Find something to talk about where um, you can have a profitable discussion. Now, you may very well be also asking, what about the situations where, often in politics, let's say, the person ostensibly says they want to engage in a political discussion with you, and you are engaging in a political discussion with them, but you're unable to persuade them. They appear to you to not want their position open for criticism. Well, again, all I can say is that you, you can only meet people where they are, and if they seem to be indicating by their behaviours and words that they don't want to be criticised, then um, I guess you could observe that out loud. It's very hard to do without insulting someone. Uh, you know, uh, It seems like you don't want to change your mind. It seems like you're not opening to change your mind. It seems like you refuse to consider. Okay, all of these things are like loaded. So better to, um, it's almost like, Wittgensteinian, you know, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent. If they really, if you genuinely believe the person doesn't want 
to uh, have their position criticised, then all you can do is not criticise it because it's it's not going to be productive in forcing the issue. It, it's a form of coercion then. If the person doesn't want criticism and you're providing criticism, that's coercion. That's coercive. Um, they've asked you, presumably, or at least indicated, perhaps non-verbally, they don't want this criticism and yet you're persisting. So then the problem is with you, <laughs> not with them, is what I would uh, suggest. Um, I'd like to ask, what is Brett Hall's principle for decision-making? Uh, well, it depends upon the situation, but it's... It's just whether or not one has a good explanation, an intuition, no explanation at all. Uh, these are the situations that one can be in. You either have a good explanation, um, you, um, you have a hint, an intuition, or you don't know. Okay? These are your three options is what I would say in general. And so faced with the decision about what to do, well, if I have a good explanation, then I do what the good explanation would tell me. What's a decision? Should I cross the road right now? Okay, there's a bus coming. Good explanation. My theory is that that object rushing down the road at 60 kilometers an hour is a bus. I've decided not to cross the road. It's now nighttime. I've got my headphones in. It's dark. I can't see. <laughs> Now I'm at the same crossroad. I don't know. <laughs> so I need to go about gathering um, evidence in order to refute the theory there's a bus coming down the street with lights turned out, presumably, because I can't see it. You know. So then I make the decision to do what it takes in order to collect the data to refute the theory there is, in fact, a bus. Okay. So this is what I think we do. Now, what's the point of saying any of that? Well, it, this is different to the way in which this is normally taught or explained, which is the idea that we weigh options. I don't think we ever do. We don't. Well, the fact is we don't. Um, weighing options would require you to, you know, weighing with what? If we take this literally, and they, they mean it literally, what's the unit of weight? I say so probabilistically, you know, you can assign a probability how. The interesting thing is you investigate that kind of Bayesian reasoning, how people come up with their priors in the first place, and it's educated guess. It's guesswork. So they're guessing, they're conjecturing, and they're putting a number on it. But it's, it's worse than normal scientific conjecture, which requires a coherent explanation to account for the phenomena. In this case, it's just a number. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. Um and it doesn't matter if you're an expert or not. In fact, experts in these cases often are more prone to a certain kind of error, a systematic way of thinking about their own field that can be mistaken. Look at physics, after all. Um, you know, prior to Einstein, no one could think of relativity except for Einstein because they had a systematic way of thinking about physics that it had to be done in a certain way. And that led them to just thinking in the same way all the time. So just because they were experts in physics actually made the majority of them that poorly placed to come up with the replacement of Newtonian physics. So, yes, um, uh, decision-making always comes down to the presence or absence of good explanations. And if you have a good explanation, that guides what your theory, what your decision is going to be. 
absent a good explanation, then you don't know what to do. And you should probably go about finding more information that can inform you. There are situations where you have intuitions, inexplicit knowledge, a feeling that something isn't quite right. You go for a job interview, let's say, and everything goes well and it's a job that you really want. And then you go home and you reflect, you get offered the job, but there's something there. There's something you can't quite articulate, didn't feel right. The person interviewing you might have been looking at you a little bit weirdly, a little bit strangely, and you can't exactly say why. You just don't feel right about it. Now, that is inexplicit knowledge. That is, you are getting clues about the environment from the other person, which need to be a pay, which you need to pay attention to. You don't have a good explanation as to why it is you feel bad about this, even though it might be the ideal job, even though everything about the situation might seem to you to be good, you have a sense that something's not quite right. So what do you do then? Well, you don't know. You're in a position of, again, not knowing. But it is a strong clue because if you were just relying on your explicit knowledge, then you would say, well, I've got a good explanation. I want this job. The person seemed friendly enough. It pays well. The current position I'm in isn't good. Uh, my good explanation, my explanation is I should take the position. But you have this niggling feeling. You have an intuition, which is not exactly a refutation of the good explanation, but it's data. It's evidence of some kind. It's an observation you've made. It is something you need to resolve. It's a problem. And so this inexplicit stuff, you have to resolve it somehow. How do you do it? You ring up. You ring up the, the company and you, 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 you talk more to the people there. You maybe talk to some of the subordinates of the person who interviewed you. Maybe they tell you. Maybe they, 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 they convey the message that this isn't a very nice boss. This isn't someone you want to work for. You do a little bit more digging and you find out, ah, that's what I was sensing. I was sensing that this person was a bit of a sleaze bag or something or other. So, yes, I think they're the three kinds of um, ways in which you, 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 you can be with respect to a decision. You have a good explanation, make the decision. You have an intuition about something that you should do, but you can't quite put it into words. That's another situation where... More data needs to be gathered in order to finally resolve it, but you have to pay attention to these intuitions. And finally, you have no information at all. You really don't know. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? I don't know, Chinese, Indian pizza, KFC, I don't know. You're mentally flipping a coin of a kind. You don't have a good explanation about which way to go. Uh, maybe you just don't care enough. This is the kind of decision that nothing turns on really. So um, you can be in that situation rather often of just not knowing just not knowing, uh, in which case the, 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 the resolution could be just pick one, just do the thing, just pick it, um, uh, outsourcing it to someone else who might be interested in making that decision. You, you know, you live with someone else who uh, really doesn't like pizza. Well, there you go. You know, they, they, they will make the decision for you and you don't mind. Hmm. Bjorn. Isn't the point of morality to ensure that we can, in principle, we can, in principle, as rational beings, solve problems? Love thy neighbor as yourself is practical, but it's not about trying to achieve some effect. I think um, it, in morality, yeah, it, it the, these heuristics, that that kind of the golden rule, love thy neighbor as thyself, or what's the platinum rule? Um, love thy neighbor as they want to be loved. Okay, you know. Um, 
Treat others as you would want to be treated, the golden rule. Treat others as they want to be treated, platinum rule. Better, okay? Treat others as they want to be treated because they might not want to be treated the way you want to be treated. Um, but I, you know, I still come back to the point of morality. The point of morality is to solve problems. So yes, and that's what, that's what, that's what you've said. Um, it, and love thy neighbour as thyself. Well, modulo what I've just said about the fact that I don't think that that necessarily is true in all cases. Uh, some people don't want to be loved in the way you maybe you hate yourself. You know, some people are in this unfortunate position, and if you hate yourself, then you don't want to love your neighbour as yourself, <laughs> do you? You've got psychological trauma and issues <laughs> which make you hate yourself, so you don't want to actually love your neighbour as yourself. You want to love your neighbour as they want to be loved. Okay, so why would we have these sort of golden rules anyway and these sort of rules of thumb when it comes to morality? To provide a situation in which we can cooperate and get along as a society and a civilization, and I would say ultimately to make progress and solve our problems. So that, that's why these things exist out there. You know, the, the first attempts at morality, the, the religious attempts at morality, were getting to something true getting to something true. I don't know. Uh, yeah. it, it was a slow, incremental evolution of knowledge when it came to morality. These encounters with, with other civilizations, as well as a turmoil that might have been going on within their own civilization, allowed them to figure out these early tribal communities, early religious ideas, to figure out how best for people to flourish. And so now we, we can look back at that ancient wisdom and figure out whether or not, you know, some of that uh, is uh, worthwhile. Let's see. Yeah, I've got. The first time I've been able to hide someone. That's great. <laughs> okay. Um, more questions. Do you think Bayesian reasoning is impractical? I mean, it's hard to rank all the possible answers. Not only is it hard to rank all the possible answers, there rarely is many possible answers. This is the great misconception, I think, with Bayesian epistemology. Of all the misconceptions that are out there, and there are many, I've described Bayesian reasoning as being inductivism in a cheap tuxedo. You know, you just it's inductivism and then add some mathematical formulae on top of it to give it a veneer of rigor. The issue is we are rarely in a circumstance where we ever need to weight our theories or explanations. We're not in that situation. It's hard enough to think of one theory. Look, let's think of something. Dark energy, this, this, this energy that is causing the accelerated expansion of the universe. We have no clue what it is. So how can we begin weighting theories about it? We don't even have one. Forget numerous ones where we can update our priors on each of these um, uh, different theories that we have, these different hypotheses we have and figure out ways of weighting them. We don't even have one. But if we had one, we could regard it either as a good explanation that we can test or not. 
presumably whatever it is, is going to have to fit in with quantum theory, general relativity. It's going to have to make predictions of its own. And when it does that, it will qualify if it accounts for the phenomena and is consistent with what we also know is going to be a good explanation with no rivals. Name your scientific theory. There are typically no rivals. It is the scientific theory. There's one. Um, best case scenario in the history of science is we've had two rival explanations and the purpose of the crucial test, the experiment, is to decide between the theories guessed. Decide between the theories guessed. My trope example <laughs> that I always talk about is general relativity and Newtonian gravity. You know, the, these two competed you know, for, for some number of years between the publication of general relativity, whenever that was, 1915, something like that, I think, uh, through to Eddington's experiment in 1919. We were in a situation, broadly speaking, where it wasn't known which was the correct theory, Newtonian gravity or general relativity. But the point of that is that this is a very, very rare occurrence in the history of science, in the history of rationality and reason, broadly speaking. We have two good explanations, genuine rivals. Now, on the Bayesian account, all observational data for centuries testified to the so-called truth of Newtonian gravity. And then in 1919, Arthur Eddington and others did the experiment which refuted uh, Newtonian gravity. So the, the probability of Newtonian gravity on Bayesian, given Bayesian reasoning was at its highest the day before it was refuted when it fell to zero. This makes no logical sense. I don't understand how that is supposed to uh, be a useful way of understanding what's going on in science. The truth is what is going on in science is either you have a good explanation or you don't. If you do have a good explanation, then you say this solves the problem of what is going on, accounting for physical reality. Um, in some cases, like dark energy, dark matter, um, you know, the, 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 a more complete understanding of evolution by natural selection, how viruses work, uh, name your scientific mystery. Um, in these situations, we don't even have one theory. We have zero theories. It's common to have zero theories. If we're lucky, we've got one that we can rely upon that is a good explanation. And rather often, no, rather, extremely rarely, we have two. So forget about Bayesian reasoning, whether you presume, oh, let's just wait all our eight or nine different theories. We don't, we rarely, I don't know of a situation where that actually is truly the case. And by the way, What we're really interested in in epistemology is coming up with the theories in the first place, the solutions to problems, the creation of knowledge. And Bayesian reasoning doesn't even pretend to do that. It's supposed to be a way of weighting theories once we have them. And as I said, once we have one, then we've got one that solves the problem. It's not easy to come up with solutions to problems of how it is that physical reality operates. You know, what is the successor to quantum theory? There are a number of physicists out there who say that they've got the way of unifying general relativity and, and quantum theory. But it's not like the Bayesian reasoners are able to do anything 
with respect to weighting any of these. Instead, what we're waiting for is ways to test these and rule them out, specifically for, for the theorists who are saying they've got these theories to themselves suggest the test, a way in which this thing could be tested. Because until they do that, they might be working outside of the realm of science, of physical science. Okay. Bjorn has asked, so a policeman cannot treat a criminal badly if he does not want it. I don't know what that means. You might have to explain that one. Uh, but Bjorn goes on to say, the point of morality is that you should sometimes what you want. Do what you want is not what you should want, which is to counter the platinum rule. Coercion must mean more than someone violating your subjective preferences. Um, people who coerce might need to be themselves coerced. There's no lack of logic in that, okay? The rule is, when it comes to coercion, don't coerce. Avoid coercion. Now, in the limit, sometimes that can be hard. You coerce yourself, you, we're error-prone, and so we can just engage in behaviours that we don't, don't even realise that we could be coercing ourselves and the people around us. So that, that, that's a thing. But when it comes to criminals, they're actively out there using force and violence. So the only moral response to that is to stop them, and that requires force. And force is a kind of coercion. So, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, it's not immoral, of course, to... Defence is not attack. These two things are not symmetrical. If someone attacks you violently, okay, then you can call that attack coercion. But thinking that all kinds of coercion stand on equal footing is wrong, <laughs> is wrong because the person who initiates violence, this is the non-aggression policy or whatever you want to call it, okay, that the, the truly wrong thing is the person who first becomes violent, the person who initiates the violence, who initiates the aggression. They're in the wrong. They're in the wrong. And so... At the moment where they make that choice, that decision to punch you in the face, then you have every right to do what it takes to stop them from doing what they're doing. And that includes, by the way, um, getting restitution. So they punch you in the face and try and run off. No, you're allowed to go and tackle them and bring them before a court. Why? Why are you allowed to do that? Because our traditions have are wiser than us in many, many cases and have figured out that if we want the society to function in the way that we want, then we have to um, do these things so that we can show our disapproval of certain kinds of behaviours. And if people are allowed to go punching people in the face without consequence, without then being coerced themselves, chaos follows. Okay, You might very well decide not to chase the person <laughs> because that could be the smart thing to do in the given situation. Um, but in gen generally speaking, when when coercion uh, or violence happens, there needs to be consequences to stop the coercion. So that's that's what we're saying there. Um, Alex, Alex has asked, when you're doing research, do you focus on a few problems at a time, or do you keep many problems open and search for ideas in an explanatory fashion? Um, well, insofar as I, I don't know if I, what I do is research um, in the way that a scientist might think of it, for example. I kind of did that uh, as part of research projects at university, but nothing ever really serious. Um, 
you know, part of my master's degree, I did research into galaxy collisions. So sometimes you'll hear me uh, reference galaxy collisions. It's the, the thing that I kind of half know about. Not, not, not an expert in the sense that a real astrophysicist would be, but I know something about it. And so I know about that kind of research. So I've done that sort of thing. Um, it was fun, but not super fun. <laughs> now, if I'm uh, reading and exploring ideas, and if I suppose if you want to call that research, um, what I'm doing is, yeah, I'm absolutely looking at a spectrum of problems from a number of different sources, looking at the way in which, for example, um, Feynman might have put things and how that might be improved. Popper might have put things and how that might be improved. The way David Deutsch has expressed things and where he's pointing us to or what, what these best ideas, what consequences they might have. Um, so do I focus on a few problems at a time? Yes, I'm in the, the, the luxurious position, I guess, uh, being fortunate enough to be able to work on a number of things simultaneously. And that that is very helpful, I think, to the creative process because one thing can naturally lead into another thing. That things completely disconnected from my podcast stuff uh, can be impacted by my podcast stuff and vice versa. That, that, that um, I'm able to explore a whole range of different things. So, yeah, um, so, yeah, so I think that answers the question. Bjorn, why should I treat a person with coercive preferences the way he wants to be treated? I'm not. I'm still not sure what that means. So, does it mean a person wants to be coerced, and so should I coerce them? Well, this is a that, that's almost like a logical paradox. How can you coerce someone if that's what they want? If what they want is to be treated in a particular way, how is that coercion? Um, they might say it. By the way, just on this kind of point, it's an edge case. You know, a person might have a kind of, you know, 0.00001% of the population might have a quirky mental state where they take um, uh, pleasure in being told what to do every single moment of the day, let's say. But then, you know, you might very well argue they're not actually being coerced if you do that. Who'd want to do that, though? I, don't know. Um, I guess what I would say, um, if you're in a situation where a person has coercive preferences, this is a bizarre person. Why are you in a relationship with that person? The issue is with you. Why are you in this situation? Get out of that situation. This person's weird. <laughs> you don't have to do anything for anyone, by the way. You don't have to. Uh, that, that, that's a, perhaps a, an equally fundamental rule of human interactions. You do you. Someone wants to be treated a certain way. You don't have to treat them at all. The platinum rule is just saying that if you are in an interaction with someone, you've voluntarily, willingly gone into this interaction with someone and you need a guide for how to treat the person, you know, here's, here's the thing. You see people at shopping centres, okay? I used to work in retail in security. My goodness, customers can be awful, there are people out there who treat people who work in retail in shops or people who work in restaurants terribly. Customers can be terrible. What is a heuristic for a person who is learning about a culture, 
you know, a teenager growing up? What is a heuristic they can use to figure out how to interact with a person selling stuff who's standing behind the cash register? A go the golden rule might be okay. Okay, Treat them the way you'd want to be treated in that situation. If you know the person, okay, it's a step further, treat them how they want to be treated in that situation. Some people have the idea that, you know, if they're the customer or something, that somehow or other, <laughs> you know, that somehow or other they, 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 uh, they're paying for a service and therefore what they've got before them is a servant which is just an awful way to be. And I saw so much of this. You still see so much of it. Rudeness that goes on in retail. This is why I've said jokingly before, tongue-in-cheek, you know, forget national service. People, politicians sometimes on the conservative side of politics often say, you know, we should get the, the teenagers into national service. They should all be made to go through the army. You want to treat people, you know, sorry, you want to teach people about other people, you want to teach people and give them a, a, a hazing and understanding of human nature, put them through retail for a few years. <laughs> a lot of kids do come out of school and they get a part-time job somewhere. That's a steep learning curve. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, treat people. Um, it, in, in the first case, treat them how you would want to be treated. Presumably you want to be treated well. And... Better than that, platinum rule, treat them how they want to be treated. Um, yeah. It's just a heuristic. It's a heuristic. Um, where am I up to? Jitten. Hi, Jitten. Jitten's a great supporter of the podcast. Jitten, so if we only have one good theory, then what do we do about crucial experiments? Wait until another theory comes up. Yeah, well, there's no, there's no such thing as a crucial experiment in a situation where you do have only one theory. A crucial experiment, the definition of a crucial experiment is that test which decides between two good explanations. It's crucial. It's the thing you've got to do to rule out one theory. And in fact, rule out every other theory that you've thought of except for the one that you've got. And of course, as I already said and emphasized, these situations that have arisen only have usually two. One theory will make prediction X, one theory will make prediction Y. You go out into the world, you do the experiment, you observe, you see observation Y, not X, it refutes the other one. So that so Jitten says, what do we do about crucial experiments? You don't need to worry about them, okay? So what's the purpose of experimentation then? Perhaps to find problems with your theory, okay? So that's the only other. It's not a crucial test. I was speaking in the live stream earlier today about the James West. James West. It's the second time I've said James West. It's James Webb. James Webb Space Telescope. The space telescope that's out there in space. It's the successor to the Hubble. And not until next month, it's going to release new pictures of deep, deep space. The deepest images of the universe hitherto uh, um generated by a telescope we haven't seen them yet they're coming so this constant this observation this telescope constitutes an experiment but it's not a crucial test after all what theories are we testing we're kind of testing our existing theory of the cosmos all of them of the big bang stellar evolution 
the distribution of galaxies. Call it what you like. This telescope will provide interesting images no matter what. If it provides what, ex what is expected, what's expected is more and more and more galaxies. This is what has happened with, for example, the Hubble Deep Field and the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, the Hubble Telescope taking pictures of dark places in space, revealing more and more galaxies. Presumably the James, West, James Webb Space Telescope is going to see ex more, more of the same. It still constitutes an experiment, but it's just um, kind of providing us more and more data consistent with our current explanations. But there is the chance it will provide the observation that makes our present theories problematic. Who knows? Maybe it will see distant galaxies, not red-shifted, but blue-shifted, coming towards us. I highly doubt this. There is no good explanation that, that we have that suggests that should happen. But let's say it did happen. What then? Aha. Then we're in a situation where we've got a problem. We've got a problem. Our theories are not refuted yet because we have no other theory to jump to. But what we have is a problem, an observational problem. A few things could happen. One is someone comes up with a new explanation, a new creative explanation that accounts for absolutely everything that we've observed in the universe hitherto and also for the blue-shifted distant, distant galaxies. Problem solved. Okay, that's the hard road to take because it requires a new theory to be created. And, you know, this is this is hard stuff. This, this is why, um, you know, Einstein is famous because he was one of the rare people able to do this. Why Newton was famous, you know, able to come up with systems of the world. Now, the other alternative is the telescope's made a mistake. How? Well, there's all sorts of imaging processing that goes on. There's all sorts of electronics in these telescopes these days. Who knows what mistake it could make somewhere along the way. And so the observation itself could be in error in some way. And so if we do see these blue-shifted galaxies, the galaxies coming towards us, rushing towards us that are, you know, uh, billions of light years away, but they're coming towards us when they should be moving away because the universe is expanding, it might just turn out that that's not really what we're seeing. That what we're in fact seeing is some artifact from the telescope. And this has happened in the history of astronomy before as well, that we thought we were seeing something through the telescope and in fact, systematic error, as we call it. Yeah, so that's happened in the history of, of astronomy and the history of, of science. Bjorn, Popper has said that in order to have a tolerant society, we need to sometimes be intolerant towards intolerance. Is one allowed then to punch ideas? Is it acceptable to punch Nazis? Um, well, punching ideas, well, of course, uh, what we want, I, I, I think there's a way to refine what Popper is saying, to explain a little bit more. He's correct that we shouldn't tolerate the intolerant, but we need to tease out different kinds of intolerance. After all, you know, just to be silly, someone might be lactose intolerant. <laughs> But I'm kind of being serious there because people can be intolerant of all sorts of things. I can be intolerant of certain kinds of music. Should I be tolerated in society? Absolutely. So what does intolerance mean? Well, intolerance is a label for when you're not tolerating other people or the existence of other people. Then we have a problem. What I would say to refine this is 
What we want is a situation where we are not destroying the means of error correction, which is a, which is a broader and deeper claim than Popper's claim about tolerance. A person is a means of error correction. We don't want to destroy any means of error correction. So therefore, we don't want to destroy people. We don't want to imprison people, hamper people, uh, be violent towards people, because that's destroying a means of error correction. Destroying a person is destroying a means of error correction. And destroying a person could be murdering a person, but it could also mean just destroying them as a person by mistreating them, imprisoning them, uh, being racist, being prejudiced, all that sort of stuff is destroying the means of error correction. But also, this idea, this paradox of tolerance, uh, it, it, it's also about speech. And so do not destroy the means of error correction means allow free speech, maximal free speech. And, and, you know, I differ with some people on this. I think that everyone's responsible for their own behaviour. Um, we don't need to go in, in, into that, I suppose. But... Um, so we sometimes need to be intolerant towards intolerance. Yes, we do. Is it allowed to punch ideas? We need to counter ideas, criticize ideas. It is, is it acceptable to punch Nazis? In our society, in Western civilization, this is what legal systems exist for. This is why we have a legal system. That a person can stand up and claim to be a Nazi and we can be intolerant towards their ideas. Now, until such time as they become violent or are in the immediate position of calling for violence, then no, you can't punch Nazis. No, you can't. You can't punch anyone. This is why we have traditions and institutions. You don't punch people. You call the police. Unless, of course, you've just been punched by someone then you can punch them back. And the legal system allows for this, okay? You're allowed self-defence. You're allowed to, well, in Australia, I know the Australian law, maybe things differ around the world, but in Australia, you may use that amount of force required to prevent the violence from continuing. Okay. These are rare, rare situations, by the way. Thank you to Bjorn for your donation. Thank you very much. Um, Adil. Brett, could you please explain what justified true belief is and why it is wrong? For example, does postmodernism, even though it styles itself as avant-garde, still buy into the wrong concept? Great. <laughs> well, this is <laughs> this is my hobby horse. <laughs> so justified true belief is the definition or conception of knowledge gifted to us by Plato, among others, and has sailed on through the intellectual traditions of the West and the Enlightenment through to today where it is taken for granted essentially as the definition of knowledge, or insofar as it's not the definition of knowledge. Minor corrections to this definition are sometimes regarded as being knowledge. So knowledge, in order to be knowledge on this account, needs to be justified as true. You need to have a reason for thinking something is true. So... We, you know, on this account, um, you look out your window and you see cows and because you have observed cows, you're justified in thinking this is true. You know there are cows out there because you've observed them, so this apparently is a justification, that you're truly seeing cows. 
And so therefore you should believe this thing. If you believe it, it's knowledge. But knowledge should never be like this. Knowledge doesn't need to be believed to be known. There's all sorts of ways in which we could be wrong. We look out the window, we see this thing that looks like a cow. Are we justified in thinking it's truly a cow? Yeah, in this day and age, maybe it's a, it's a very, very good hologram of a cow. We could be mistaken. We could be mistaken. We not, might not be justified at all. Uh, that What could the possible justification be? These photons of light entering our eye? Um, knowledge is, as I say, information that solves a problem. Now, belief is this thing where it's, it, it, has, it has a number of different definitions itself, some of which contradict, some of which stand in stark contrast to one another. On the one hand, it could mean believe, think is absolutely true. I believe in God. When people say I believe in God, they're not saying I hope or guess that he's there. They, they are genuinely saying something more. It's a strong claim. Really, truly, God exists. I believe it. But on the other hand, you could say, you know, um, oh, where's John at the moment? Um, I believe he's in the living room. Well, then you're sort of saying, not that you truly, honestly think that he is, but your best guess is, which gets more to what knowledge is about, right? Knowledge is more about best guesses, uh, conjecturing good explanations. So what justified true belief is, is the old conception of knowledge that people now debate about because they want to figure out what the correct justifications are, what can justify something as true. In mathematics, you start off with the axioms and then you can justify as true Pythagoras' theorem. Is Pythagoras' theorem justified as true? Well, if the axioms are true, then it's justified as true. Should you believe it on this account? Yes, you should, because you've justified it's true, and then you believe it. But how do you know the axioms are true? They're not justified, except if you say, well, something that's self-evidently true is justified. <laughs> well, how do you know it's self-evident? Okay, and I, in my podcast I did with Naval, I go on about that, you know, there's no settled mathematics thing, and, you know, um, through any two points, you can draw a unique straight line, all that sort of stuff. Um, so there are all sorts of things in mathematics that are thought to be self-evidently true that turn out not to be. We can always be in error. This search for justifications is always going to produce or always going to contain possible sources of error. So therefore, we can't be justified or probably justified. We don't need to be. We just need to solve our problems and explain stuff. And so knowledge is information that solves a problem. Uh, it is useful, therefore, useful information, but we don't need to believe any of it. Newtonian gravity didn't need to be believed. That's the, my best example of this stuff. You know, We can use Newtonian mechanics and Newtonian gravity to solve problems today. It counts as knowledge. It counts as knowledge but you're not justified in thinking it true 
because it's not true. It's been refuted, but it'll solve a problem. It'll solve a problem of how to get rockets to the moon, how to predict the tides, how to keep bridges up. All of this can come down to Newtonian mechanics. But no one should believe it, even though it's knowledge, and, and it is knowledge. Yeah, so justified true belief, all, all wrong. Postmodernism, yeah, concludes rightly that it's a fool's errand to try and justify anything as true. You can't do it. But then wrongly concludes on that basis that because you can't justify things as true, that therefore knowledge isn't possible. So they get that wrong. Popper walked the line properly between dogmatism, where people say, I can justify something as true. I have got the final theory. God's written it down. It's there in nature. I can prove it mathematically. I'm justified thinking this is true. Therefore, I believe it and I'll fight to the death anyone who says otherwise. That's the dogmatist who endorses the justified true belief view of knowledge. And the postmodernist who says, well, no, what you think is a justified reason for thinking something is true isn't a justification at all. You can't know that that thing is true. You can never know something is absolutely true. Therefore, knowledge isn't possible. And so you go down that road of postmodernism and relativism. Popper came along and said, you're both making a mistake. You're both endorsing this idea of justified truth. You don't need to justify things as true. You don't need to believe this stuff. What knowledge is, you can know something and simultaneously know it to be false. But it's going to solve particular problems. And because you can't justify anything as true, but you can improve it, you can make progress. And that goes on infinitely. There's no, that's an unbounded process. So much more optimistic because the, the, the dogmatist says, I've already got the final truth. There's no point trying to improve on this. Here we go. We've got it. We've got the final truth. No progress possible after that. The, the, the relativist, the postmodernist says, it's not possible to get justified truth anywhere. Therefore, knowledge isn't possible. Therefore, no, prog no genuine progress is possible. People talk like this in academia quite often. It's not real progress. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they both agree that progress isn't possible. Only if you take on a view of conjectural knowledge genuinely can you really endorse the perspective that Progress is always possible because you don't have the final truth. But progress is possible. Objective knowledge is possible. There's something to be wrong about out there in reality. When you make a claim, it could be wrong because there's a reality to the situation. There is something true and you can be wrong about it. You can make mistakes objectively. And by correcting those mistakes, you make progress. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, could you say something about why Popper seems to say, I'll, I'll go through the next few quickly. We'll just do a quick rapid fire because then I need to go to dinner. Here in Australia, it is 7.19 p.m. I thought I'd do the second one because oh, it'll give the Aussies perhaps a chance to come <laughs> to, to come onto the website because they will have finished work for the day. Um, so I don't know what time is best for me to do these live streams if I continue to do them when when people are up around the world. Being in Australia, it's either, you know, middle of the day for me here is middle of the night for people in Europe. Okay. Anyway, so I'm going to do a rapid fire bunch, maybe hang around for another 10 minutes. So let's go. Let's see what we can get through. 
Could you say something about why Popper seems to say that problem finding might be more important than solutions? Does he? I don't know. I, I, I hasten to add I'm not a Popper scholar. People sometimes think of me as being some expert on Popper. I'm really not. I'm a fan of Popper and I've read as much of his stuff as I can get a hold of, but I'm not someone who is studying carefully what he says. Now, I would agree with that statement absolutely that problem finding might be more important than solutions because there could be a whole bunch of problems for which the solution is unimportant. So you don't need to find those solutions. They're not urgent. But absolutely finding the problems is really, really important because and this is why I say rapid progress is our most pressing problem. Forget all the other problems out there that people name all the time, okay? Let people work on those. I'm not saying forget, okay? Forget is the wrong word, but forget becoming pessimistic and downcast and falling into concerns that the world is going to end because of any one of these named problems that the intellectuals and the academics have come up with. Instead, be concerned about the rate of progress because it's the rate of progress that will allow us to identify new problems. That is why problem finding is more important than any given solution. Generally speaking, there could be the disaster for which the solution is needed more urgently than new problem finding. For example, if the asteroid really does appear in the sky tomorrow and NASA and the European Space Agency and all the experts converge on predicting, on saying, this thing is going to hit within six months. It's absolutely going to hit the Earth. Then in that case, or better off, we need to focus on that solution. That thing's absolutely going to wipe us out. We've got to do something about it. Let's find the solution. It's urgent. But generally speaking, when we're not in that position where civilization is going to be wiped out, or you personally aren't going to die from the growing tumor that the doctors just informed you about, in all other situations, then you need to be out there problem finding, both as a civilization and individually, because there's there is some problem out there, more than one problem, there's many problems, infinite problems possible that could wipe us out. And so we need to keep on searching for them so that we can find the solution to them in time. But yes, yeah, so that's why I would say um, um, uh, finding new problems, okay, which often comes from solving old problems, by the way, that's another way of finding problems, uh, is kind of the more important thing. But that just means that fundamental research is the most important thing, um, civilizationally speaking, fundamental research. Um, uh, and the most fundamental of all the sciences is physics, and the most fundamental parts of physics are the people who work on the foundations of physics. And so that those foundational areas of physics touch more areas of our intellectual understanding of the universe than anything else. Okay, I better keep on going. A question from Lily's website I'd like your view on. Why is interest, interestingness a better criterion for action than importance? Um, well, I guess import, import, there's, the, importance is not an objective criteria. People might say that it is. But interestingness is just what you find fun. So I yeah I don't I don't really know like you I can I can certainly imagine a situation you know where your health is in danger and you have an important problem but you're not interested in it, in which case 
the important problem of having, again, the tumor removed. <laughs> I guess it would be, how could you not be interested in that? It has to be interesting in that. But in the situation where you're perfectly healthy, where um, life is going well and whatever else, um, then yeah, you want to pursue your interests. I'd need to be given a specific example in order to be able to uh, answer this question uh, in anything more than universal broad brush strokes. There might not be a universal answer to this unless we can um, uh, more, more better understand the distinction between interestingness and importance. And I'm sure Luli has that distinction in mind, which I don't right now. Um, upvote comment. Are you aware of Nassim Taleb's books? Absolutely, yes, yes. I've read, um, yeah, uh, The Black Swan. What are your thoughts about them? Good. I think that um, there, he's certainly Popperian in some senses, but also I think that he takes probability seri too seriously as a universal explanation that if you get into this business, sometimes you can get into the, the issue of forecasting, prophesying, um, so that can be a hazard of uh, sometimes this approach. Um, so yeah, he, his books are well. His his book <laughs> that I've read is good, but I, I don't follow his work uh, in depth. But I am. If the question is, am I just aware of them? Yes, I am. What are your thoughts about them? Good as far as I can tell. A bit heavy on uh, placing deep importance on probability and knowledge of probability. My views on probability are on my YouTube channel, uh, Probability and Risk. I tend to side with David Deutsch on this, that it's largely a scam because you know, what happens is determined to happen by the laws of physics. Things don't probably happen, they happen. And if you want to guess about the future, either you've got a good explanation, in which case it's a logical derivation from the scientific theory you have, or you don't know because knowledge creation is going to have an impact. Human choice is going to have an impact. And in those cases, no one has a clue. Sometimes you might want to prepare for the future, but that's a whole other issue. And we could talk about that some other time. How to become better at finding criticism of one's own ideas? I don't think there's um, any special recipe to this. Uh, other than if you're in the position of asking the question, you've already made 95% of the headway, I would say. You're already in the position of thinking, where could I possibly be wrong? Can I possibly be wrong? And, yeah, like when, it be when things become a problem, that's when you want to start criticising. When you're stuck, when you're not having fun, when things aren't interesting, when things are going wrong, it's then you need to criticise yourself. If everything's going right and you're just having fun, and you're creating wealth and knowledge and your relationships are all great, then why do you want to criticize your ideas? Apparently, they're solving all of your problems at a rapid rate, and you're just getting better day after day after day. So there could be a very good reason why not to go around criticizing. You might think, well, I can make even still faster progress and having more fun than what I'm having. You know, Maybe. But there's, there's something to be said for I'm also enjoying the present moment of being at peace with the fact that you've got a great life, if you do. 
Now, if you don't, then of course you've got to start criticizing your ideas. So it's it's that when we're talking about I'm not a self-help type person, but that is what I would say the distinction is. Become so if you are in a situation where life is not going well, how do you become better at criticizing one's own ideas? It could very well take more than just you. And many people have made this point before. If you are in a bad situation, you think things are going badly, first place to go is friends and family. Absent that, then the professional, the psychologist, who all of whom can help you criticize your ideas. Other people can see the problems that you might not be able to see in yourself. Sometimes you just don't know how to criticize your own ideas. That doesn't help, of course, in answering the question, how can you become better at criticizing your own ideas? I, beyond what I've just said, I don't know. Talking to other people because you can be blind to the ideas that need to be criticized. Um, let's keep going. Uh, Bjorn Deutsch has said that there are anti-rational memes. Sometimes such ideas are exchanged in free markets. Is the government allowed to intervene and stop such ideas through technical means? There are anti-rational memes. Such ideas are exchanged in free markets. Um, an anti-rational meme is something that actively causes the holder to stop criticism in some way, shape, or form. I'd need to have a specific example. The free market is just a way in which people can cooperate and exchange stuff, money, services, goods, without coercion. Should the government be allowed to intervene and stop such ideas through technical means? I say no, but again, we would need specifics. Should there be a free market in plutonium? Perhaps not. That's another issue. Um, from Aaron, thank you for your contribution. I'm learning so much from your podcast that I'm happy to show my appreciation. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you kindly. Um, Alex, uh, Joseph Agassi has said in his book, Joseph Agassi in his book on Popper mentioned the latter believed in a moral duty to work hard. Do you agree we have such a duty? Why? It depends upon what work hard means. I've thought about this a lot recently because I know some people have the philosophy of not working hard. And yet my observation of them is they work hard. I'm in sometimes this interesting position where I very much endorse the ideas of the non-coercion community. And at the same time, simultaneously, I see great value and insight in the work of someone like Jocko Willink, you know, this ex-Navy SEAL guy who talks about discipline as freedom, and, you know, he's this uber-masculine, you know, tough guy who gets up at, you know, 4.30 every morning and does a workout and seems to be self-coercing, but I don't think so. I think in both cases, the non-coercion people and someone like that are having fun. Jocko's way of life is not a prescription for happiness for everyone, but for that kind of person, it's fun. He would probably look at the non-coercion people and think, that looks like hell to me. <laughs> not having to get up at 4.30 every morning. He loves it, you know? So he works hard, and it's obvious to everyone that he works hard. And there's a lot of people out there you know, um, online that, you know, seem to be, uh, 
um, sort of, what do we say, role models for people on how to work hard, you know, uh, get the better body, earn more money, um, become more healthy, work hard. It can be coercive, absolutely. Working hard can be coercive. In other words, engaging act in activities that you don't really want to, that make life not fun, tasks that your boss wants you to do and you don't really want to do. That's all a problem. But when you're personally in control of your life entirely, as someone like Jocko is, he doesn't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning, but he does. Is he self-coercing? I just don't think so. I listen to his podcast all the time and he's having a, he's having a ball of a time. Um, now, he tells other people, you know, this is what you should do because if you do the kind of things he does, then it will help. Now, that's a good prescription for someone, and Jordan Peterson does a sort of similar kind of a thing where especially with young men, not knowing what they want to do with their lives, being unhappy with their life, just being a rudderless boat, one of my friends used to say, not knowing in what direction they should go, especially as they move through their teens into their early 20s. It's a, it's a, it's a big issue for some people. In that situation where you just don't know, then whether you go down the road of non so-called non-coercion and just purely having fun all the time or you go down the Jocko road, both might help, but the Jocko Road could be the one where you go, oh, now I'm enjoying things. Hey, I'm going to the gym and I'm, you know, getting more fit and strong. Hey, I'm reading more books and I'm finding this really intellectually stimulating. Hey, I'm going out and meeting more people, you know. You're kind of, in a sense, you know, you might call it forcing or coercing yourself into these situations that you otherwise wouldn't because this older, wiser person has said, I've been there before and I know what it's like and do this. And then you quickly find that it's like climbing a little hill. So maybe you've got to coerce yourself to get to the top of the hill. But once you're at the top of the hill, then you're rolling straight on down and you're having a lot of fun, almost like the roller coaster, I suppose. You know, it's hard that bit. And then you sort of go rushing down. And I think that this is what the, the Jocko Willink style people of the world are all about. So, moral duty to work hard. I think moral duty to find what's fun and then pursue that as far as possible. And if that's working hard, then I'm with Popper. It'd just be interesting to ask Popper what he really meant. I think what he means is, you know, to solve problems. And, and Popper was working at, of course, at a particular time, um, a particularly difficult time um, uh, for him. And so he understood that he came from a culture and, and, and from historical circumstances that meant in order to escape from the problems that he had, then the style of working hard is diff was different then to what it is now. And so the prescription for how to live a life of flourishing may very well have been different then to what it is now. We can reinterpret what working hard is, I would say. Okay. Um, continue with the live streams. Quick fire question. Is Deutsch's prediction about AGIs wrong with how Lambda currently seems to develop? Uh, Aaron, if I could just point you to my last live stream, it's there on my video channel. I talked about Lambda, so I won't go into the full explanation again now. I would just say that the questions asked of it um, might, could point to consciousness, but I think that's a very bad explanation. It's a very bad explanation. This thing is actually experiencing consciousness and suffering and is a creative AGI. Bad explanation. Better explanation? It's an advanced chat bot that has been loaded with 
a whole bunch of terms, phrases, sentences, stock responses centered around talking about personhood. So, you know, I want to get it on to talking about some other topics, a range of other topics. Then let's see how it does. Let's see how it does when it gets off topic. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Um, previous uh, podcast kind of thing. <clears throat> Bjorn again. Thank you, Bjorn, for your comments. Sean. Hi, Sean. Sean Knight. Good Aussie friend. Um, how do we distinguish between the is and the ought? It seems to me that there is a liminality, a top-down version of our participation in reality that isn't nested in a rational material landscape. So if we take on board the uh, reality that is given, that is taught to us by physics, I would say that there, um, that all possible ises are instantiated somewhere in this physical reality. And our purpose as human beings is to determine um, which of these physical realities we wish to occupy in greatest measure. There's a lot of loaded jargon there. So is in one way is, is in one way is, is is what exists now, now and what the methods of methodologies of science tell us is the case. What is really going on, what our best explanations of science account for. That's how it is. Ought is the domain of morality. What could be the case but isn't yet. So we distinguish between these two cases is ought is the is that we want to make actual but is at the moment only potential. And how we actualize it is by making choices and creating knowledge. It's the distinction between not merely what is possible but rather what has already happened in our timeline, that's the is, and the ought is what is yet to happen in our timeline but we want. And so we can't derive an ought from an is. Okay, Humor's right about that. But we can't, as David Deutsch points out, we can't derive ises from ises either. You know, just because it is the case that light is coming from the sky and we call that a star doesn't mean it is the case that, for example, stars are small, dim and cold, which appears to be what they are in the sky at night. So the is of what we see does not give us the is of what they really are. So we can't derive is from is. So forget about ought from is. We can't divide is from is. Yeah, so um, yeah. So I think that's that. <clears throat> um, will you publish this on your short podcast channel? <clears throat> they should appear in my YouTube feed. Now, whether or not I should put them onto audio, I, I don't know. You know, I've got you know, the Apple podcast and all that sort of stuff. Whether or not this is worth turning into uh, a purely audio thing, I don't know. I, I, uh, people tell me they can listen via YouTube. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, uh, Bjorn has entered the discussion with Sean. That's good. Um, about Heigl and stuff. Um, as Brett said, the final ought to always be to abide by. Error correction, yeah. So, good. 
Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Um, been a lot of fun. So I will, again, probably do this like next week or something like that, but this has been great. Thank you very much to the people who um, sent through some support, super chat questions. That's a lot of fun as well. Um, until next time, which should be uh, next week sometime, I presume. Um, yeah. Have fun. Enjoy yourselves and goodbye. Welcome to my second, third, third live stream. Technical difficulties. Uh, I set up a link and prepared for a live stream and well, I don't know what happened, but anyway, I couldn't get on. So I had to reset it up all over again. And here we are. So um, I, apologies to the people who are waiting at the other one when you come back to this one. <laughs> uh, yes, because of the screw up. I don't know what the technical difficulty is. I thought that having done two practice ones, that would be enough uh, for me to know exactly how to use this live stream thing on YouTube. As it is, uh, clearly I'm not <laughs> an aficionado yet. So let's see how we go here. Hopefully I can be heard. Um, I'm going to privilege the Patreons. You can become a Patreon of mine, of course. And the Patreons have asked me questions first, and then I'll get to... Um, the very many Twitter questions. So I'm just very relaxed here at the moment because I have a vast number of deep questions to get through. And so I could be here for a while. Now, <laughs> um, Jem, my partner that I live with, suggested that I should set a timer. <laughs> so that way I, I don't go running over time. But uh, I, I can imagine what I would do. I would see the five-minute timer, let's say, and realize when the five minutes is up that I hadn't answered the question and have to reset the timer all over again. So I don't think that would help. And maybe just um, sitting back, relaxing, and taking my time with uh, each of the questions, no matter how deep, is probably the best way to go. So um, beginning with Mart Van Megan from Patreon, he says, Hi, Brett. I was watching Competitive Rocket League recently, and it dawned on me that these professional gamers are doing things that the programmers could never have imagined when they made the game. That's undoubtedly true of many other games as well. I have a gut feeling it has something to do with universality, but I have no coherent thoughts. Maybe you do. Well, not beyond the fact that any time a human being creates a system, which could be a game or it could be a, a method of printing, uh, they could invent the pencil. Then, of course, any tool that a human being invents is going to be used by other human beings in completely unpredictable ways. And so, yes, of course, it has something to do with universality, the creativity of people. So an invention is going to be used by people in creative and different unusual ways. I mean, I played Skyrim there for a while and people weren't simply playing Skyrim. I mean, they would gather there. Yeah, you know, well, well, um, uh, sorry, not Skyrim. What was the, the online? Anyway, online games in general, people use not merely to play the game, but to gather together and to even have parties and stuff and have meetups. And um, so, yeah, of course, uh, I'm sure the person who invented the early systems of writing uh, may not have imagined all the different uses that writing would then be put to. Um, possibly it was just used initially to record messages or to record official documents, let's say. 
uh, who knows if they would have been able to imagine scripts for movies and that kind of thing. So same kind of thing. Someone invents a game and the users of the game, the players are going to uh, come up with interesting things to do that the programs could not have possibly foreseen. Yeah. Cody Baldwin asks, this is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek interpretation of the anti-natalist argument. If suffering is a result of lacking knowledge, all evils are caused by insufficient knowledge, and potential knowledge growth is infinite, then that means there's no way to create consciousness without promising suffering. Is it morally wrong, then, to have a biological baby? Uh, so I have to disagree with the premise of the question, that that means there's no way to create consciousness without pro promising suffering. I No, it's not that... Yeah, all suffering is the result of lacking knowledge. All evils are caused by insufficient knowledge. Yes, but that doesn't mean that insufficient knowledge itself necessarily causes evil. There are problems in the world. One problem, okay, caused by insufficient knowledge is suffering. Well, it, it labels a vast spectrum of different experiences a person can go through, call them suffering. But there's a whole bunch of problems caused by insufficient knowledge that aren't anything like that, that in fact do the opposite. They provide joy. An unproblematic state is death. Or, that's what that's David Deutsch's way of putting things, all life is problem solving. That's Karl Popper's way of putting things. So when we say that, and when David Deutsch points out, this is the principle of optimism, all evils are caused by insufficient knowledge, then one such evil is suffering. And I am of the opinion that suffering is a soluble problem, that all the different instances of suffering can be solved, leaving us with still problems, still insufficient knowledge. That's always going to be the case. But the problems that we will be solving will not involve the solving of suffering because they will have been solved. Now, we're talking about a distant future here. And, of course, there could always be the thing that comes out of the dark cosmos somewhere that could cause us suffering. But everything that we think of now as suffering, all the physical body pains that are unpleasant to us can be done away with. All diseases can be cured. Death of loved ones can be fixed because they don't have to die. Uh, uh, traffic accidents can be avoided. All of these things that cause suffering can be fixed. So suffering itself is a soluble problem. Now, at the moment, it's not. So then the antinatalists might very well go, and this is the problem, by the way, because of the fact that suffering is um, soluble, it can't be a basis for morality because once you've solved suffering, and as I say, I think you can, once you've solved all suffering, you've still got a problem of what to do next. You're still, what should you do? And, and it won't be about minimising suffering at that point because there will be zero suffering. And we shouldn't really be thinking about in terms of um, maximising happiness or well-being either. Because we've moved so far away from a place where we have to worry about differences in well-being that it's just different species of well-being. So do we maximise off in this direction or that direction? Well, this is why having these bases for morality is wrong. And just regarding morality rather as the solving of moral problems, as scientists are solving of scientific problems, is really the way to conceive of things. But at the moment, we have heuristics which are useful, avoid suffering where we can and increase well-being and so on. You know these kinds of things. But given that today at the moment, um, given that today 
we do have this problem of suffering. How do we respond to the antinatalists? Well, what a poverty-stricken conception of people that is. Firstly, the idea that, um, that people are just born into this world suffering or potentially suffering. They're also born into this world potentially experiencing a lot of joy. And for every year that goes by, the amount of suffering decreases and the amount of joy increases. And moreover, moreover, denying potential parents, <laughs> denying potential parents, uh, the joy, the 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 incomparable joy of having children itself is a, co- a cause of suffering, massive suffering for the parents, for the people already alive. So, yeah, I think that people, and this will in- become increasingly more true, People are sources of joy more than experiences of suffer, suffering. So I think that's the way to look at it. Is, so is it moral, morally wrong then to have a biological baby? And I know Cody doesn't um, really think that, as he says, tongue-in-cheek. No, it's one of the most moral things you can do, is to have a child, to bring a child into the world. So um, we, we aren't promising suffering to children at all. We certainly shouldn't be. The world isn't promising them suffering, really. Things can go wrong, and uh, but parents can do a more or less good job and can tend in the direction of minimising suffering. Now, of course, eventually people grow up and, um, you know, they, 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 they make their own mistakes. Indeed, people, you know, uh, youngsters make their own mistakes and that can cause suffering right now because now we don't know. But being in a position of ignorance is the position that we are always in anyway at any time, no matter how far into the distant future we have to go. And maybe the child that's born tomorrow or is decided on being born at some point in the future is the one that is instrumental, key, crucial in solving the problem of suffering, which is another reason why we should have more children and uh, counter the antinatalists. Some of the worst pessimists of all, I think. Um, Vish, might be a bit technical, but how are the many theories of QM structured? How are, for example, QFT, it's quantum field theory, QED, quantum electrodynamics, QCD, quantum chromodynamics, the standard model and quantum computation related to each other? Are they all consistent with each other and the many worlds interpretation? Wow, um, Vish coming in... (laughs) Very hot on this one. Okay, so this is, this is a challenge. So I'm, firstly, although I did undergraduate stuff in physics and I did, you know, sort of master in astrophysics, um, I may very well butcher this because I'm not a professional physicist. <laughs> but, you know, I've tried to keep up as a layperson in these areas. So what I would say in response to that kind of question, it's kind of like asking... Um, How are the many different theories of biology structured? How are, for example, uh, zoology, ornithology, uh, botany, and so on? And and, and maybe we would say uh, the the theory of evolution and neo-Darwinism and the theory of genetics. uh, How are these things related? Are they consistent with each other? Yes, they have to be consistent with each other because they're all basically different ways of looking at the same thing. Or... A better way to put it, perhaps, is there is a subject area, call it quantum mechanics, I'd rather call it quantum theory, and then there are 
disciplines within those areas or areas of focus that some physicists focus on more than others. So let's try and tease these out. So quantum mechanic, quantum theory is the broadest possible umbrella under which these things fall. I'm going to get in trouble off real physicists for saying this, I'm sure. Quantum field theory is where you bring in special relativity. And so special relativity, uh, considering how particles move at uh, close to the speed of light, then things begin to change. And so uniting special relativity and quantum mechanics using a field approach, which is what physicists do. Physicists like waves, physicists like particles, physicists like fields. And so this is a way of bringing these two otherwise disparate branches of physics together, quantum mechanics and special relativity. We, can't, we don't know how to bring together quantum theory and general relativity. We can't do that. We don't know how to incorporate gravity. But we can incorporate the effects of special relativity, and there's your quantum field theory. And then quantum field theory has within it <laughs> sub-genres as well. Quantum electrodynamics, charged particles. So how charged particles move around. Um, you know, how, do, how do electrons move around? How do protons move around uh, in, in fields at the quantum level? What's going on there? Quantum chromodynamics. Bringing in the strong force, I believe, gluons and that kind of thing. How do they behave quantum mechanically? So that's what that is. So quantum electrodynamics and quantum chromodynamics, I believe, are uh, species of quantum field theory. Quantum field theory is a thing to try and help understand how to understand all this stuff, quantum stuff, uh, rel with relativistic effects. And what goes on there is we regard particles as excitations of a field, and the field is in some sense more fundamental than the particles. I don't like to think about it that way. I just like to think, well, what are particles? Well, excitations of the field, given this theory. We can still regard them as fundamental. There's a fundamental way that the field can be excited. It can be excited in one way and give you an electron and excited in a different way and give you a, 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 a photon, let's say. Um, the standard model, the standard model is specifically that part of quantum mechanics focused on just what the particles themselves are doing. Quantum mechanics is a theory that purports to govern everything in the universe, right? Leaving aside gravity, space-time. But if you're just focused on, you know, what's matter made out of? Well, matter is made out of uh, atoms. The atoms consist of protons and neutrons. The protons and neutrons are made out of quarks, up and down quarks. Uh, or they're in the nucleus, orbited by electrons. Electrons are a species of lepton. Uh, there are different kinds of leptons, like muon, I think, is one. All these different... Then you've got bosons, bosons which mediate the forces, you know, and so in the case of the electromagnetic force, you've got photons which do that. Then you've got um, gluons which mediate the strong force. And so you've got all these particles, and they call it the particle zoo, and so that's the standard model. And so it's a sub-genre under the umbrella of quantum theory. And then quantum computation. Well, quantum computation, again, it's a subgenre within quantum theory. It just brings in computation. It says, what can a computer do? Given these things are made out of matter, they're made out of physical stuff. So um, what limits does that impose? Or what does it allow, rather? Um, so that's the theory of quantum computation. So a vicious question then goes on to say, how are they related to each other? Just like that, I would say. Umbrella term and then sub-disciplines within the area of quantum mechanics. Are they all consistent with each other? Yes, in the same way that zoology and botany are consistent with biology. Um, 
and the many worlds interpretation. Yes, they have to be. All of these things, in fact, can only be understood best through the many worlds interpretation, which is just uh, applying realism to understanding the experiments of quantum theory and, moreover, trying to understand what the formalism is telling us. So when we look at something like the Schrodinger wave equation, uh, and it says that all of these different possibilities are the thing that cause this one thing we observe to happen, well, all those different possibilities really exist because if they're all coming to bear on, you know, what actually does happen, then they all really exist. They're causal, so they're there in reality. So that's all the many worlds interpretation is kind of about. Thanks, Vish. As I say, really coming in hard with that one. RJ, hey, Brett, obsessed with all your content and the Deutsches as well. Many media outlets and accredited journals are prophesying for most major coastal cities to be underwater by 2060. Is this the same blind pessimism as peak oil forecasts in the 90s and the Malthusian trap in the 18th century? Yes, absolutely. Any prediction of that kind is, of course, as you say, actually a prophecy. We cannot know what things will be like here on planet Earth in 2060. We don't know. What a prophet of that kind presumes is that given what we understand now of, let's say, climate science, extrapolating to 2060, let's say, uh, and I assume they're using the worst possible estimations for the rate at which the polar ice caps would melt and therefore sea levels would rise, assuming nothing is done, assuming nothing is done, then, yeah, absolutely, maybe the worst could happen. But, of course, people are here. We're on planet Earth. If we can cause the problem, we can undo the problem. Problems are soluble. There's nothing inherent in melting polar ice caps, which means that we cannot undo the problem. We know of ways to cool the globe in theory, in principle. You know, just put big enough mirrors in the sky and it will shine the stuff back towards the sun. I mean, yeah, sure, expensive, sure, engineering problem, but in principle, we know how to do this. And so uh, will coastal cities be underwater in 2060? No. I would say most won't be. Uh, you, or you could just build walls, couldn't you? I mean, that would be a simple low-tech solution to this. Uh, Amsterdam and most of the Netherlands, I believe, would be underwater now if they weren't using technology to keep the place effectively afloat because <laughs> they're, they're extremely smart people, great engineering tradition. They're already doing what every other place could do. They can teach the world how you stop being inundated by the ocean when you live adjacent to it. Okay, so, yeah. Um, so I better go. So that's the Patreons. Thank you to my Patreons for asking those questions. Adil, thank you for your contribution. Um, we'll prioritise you next. Hi, Brett. Could you... Please explain the difference between computational universality and explanatory universality and why is the distinction pretty important? Yes, yeah, so this goes to the distinction between hardware and software. Computational universality is what the typical computer approximately has. We say approximately has because in order to be truly universal, in other words, to run any program that can possibly be written, you would need an infinite amount of memory because some programs would require an infinite amount of memory. So we can only approximate that. But, you know, we don't need to necessarily um, simulate stuff, let's say, that requires an infinite amount of memory. Um, we can just approximate it. Okay, so that's that. A computational universality 
implies the existence of a computer that can do the work of absolutely any other computer that can be built, a single device that can do the work of any other. And so that is, as I say, approximately desktop computers. This is what uh, Turing's great insight was, Church, Turing, Post. Um, I think these, these guys got there and figured out that not only was there this one computer that could do the work of any other, but also, you know, incorporating the work of David Deutsch, um, there is a computer that can simulate uh, efficiently uh, any physical process. Any possible physical process can be computed by a, this particular device. So this is about the hardware, what the hardware can do. You can write programs for this computer, programs for this bit of hardware that can do anything that any other process, can, can simulate any other process out there from atoms through to galaxies and literally anything in between. And that includes people, of course, okay? So all you need is the right program to put in. So that's what computational universality is. But then what's explanatory universality? Well, it's a layer on top of that. It's what we have. Now, we know how to write the program that simulates how planets move around the sun. And so we've got good computer simulations of that, and we can predict where, you know, Jupiter is going to be in the year 2060, let's say. And we can write programs to simulate, you know, how an aeroplane flies, hence we have flight simulators. Uh, we can write programs that compose, that, that help us to compose music, like GarageBand and so on. But what is the program for a person? Well, it's got to be the thing that can explain anything because that's what we can do. That's what explanatory universality is. The laws of physics are comprehensible. We know that because of what I just said about computational universality. Because comprehensibility is a kind of computation. We understand stuff. And the laws of physics themselves are computable. Any physical system out there can be captured by a computer program if only you know what that computer program is. And so therefore, effectively, what people are, are virtual reality renderings of their models of the world. Okay, we are minds running on brains and we're modeling uh, the rest of physical reality out there. You don't have direct access to physical reality. There's this layer of interpretation between your mind, which is doing the thoughts, the evidence that is coming into your senses, and then physical reality. You're interpreting this evidence and creating models. The models are inaccurate. They can always be improved. But you can explain anything because of what a mind is as an explainer. Uh, postulating things that can't be explained is all that one is doing at that point. I, don't know, I know a lot of academics do this. I know a lot of intellectuals do this. A lot of science communicators do this. Uh, but what if the laws of physics can't be understood? What if there's a thing out there that can't be understood? Well, you're just saying God. That's really what we're saying. It's supernaturalism. Now, I credit supernaturalism to the work of Lily Tannant, but Lily told me that, in fact, Ayn Rand used supernaturalism as a term. So whatever the case, as soon as you start saying things are incomprehensible to people, you're postulating the existence of a thing that is beyond nature, that is sits outside of the laws of physics as we know them. Now, of course, you can always say, you can always say, what if the laws of physics do turn out different? What if we overturn computational universality? then all bets are off, sure. But I would like to think, for example, that whatever the quantum 
gravity theory of computation is, uh, we'll just see quantum computation as it is now as a special case. So we'll still have this universality. It could rule out explanatory universality, but thinking about that now, it, it, all, all that's doing is just putting a wall in front of progress. Better to just presume computational universality holds. Because if you don't, it's just postulating God. There's an entity out there or there's a thing out there beyond the comprehension of people. Okay, fine. Um, but it doesn't get you any further than that. It doesn't get you far. Whereas assuming the opposite, assuming everything can be understood, does allow for progress. In fact, it's the precondition uh, for progress. Okay, so thanks, Adil. Great question. Now, I'm going to go to all the very many Twitter questions that I got and well, at least try and get through some. Let's see. Beginning with David Hearn. David says, is the number of Harry Potter universes finite or Aleph null? <laughs> okay. Harry Potter universes, firstly. Harry Potter universes is a term that arose in discussions about the fabric of reality like two decades ago or something like that. We were talking about what the structure of the multiverse implied. And one suggestion was that, well, in the multiverse, there must be a, there must be universes in which there's just series of coincidences happening. And these series of coincidences can make things like magic appear to work, never actually work or appear to have worked. An example is there is a universe out there where every time a bespeckled boy holds aloft a wooden stick and says abracadabra, electrical sparks come flying out of the stick. What do we make of that? We do not say that the bespeckled boy holding the stick aloft and saying abracadabra is the cause of the sparks coming out of the stick. It's just that by coincidence, extremely rare coincidence, sparks came out of the stick and continue to come out of the stick every time he says it. And the number of times this happens in the multiverse increasingly diminishes to a vanishingly small number. In fact, it begins as a vanishingly small number and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, approaching, asymptotically approaching zero, the number of times that sort of thing happens in the multiverse. And this is what we call a Harry Potter universe. Technically, such universes exist. They're not much worth worrying about <laughs> because they, as we say, that the structure of the universe is determined by information flow and it's only where knowledge is being generated, genuine knowledge, that things are replicated. And in such universes, you're not generating knowledge. There's no such thing as real magic. And so in those universes, every time Harry, Harry Potter, every time this bespeckled boy holds aloft the wand and sparks come out, the next time he holds it aloft, it should behave exactly like it does in our universe and does, except, again, in a very, very tiny, tiny sliver of universes, a tiny proportion of universes where, again, the sparks come out and repeat the process. Okay, so that's what a Harry Potter universe is. It sounds bizarre and strange, but yeah. As David Deutsch says, I think in the beginning of infinity, um, uh, somewhere in the multiverse, all fiction is fact. Uh, so long as it doesn't violate the laws of physics. As long as it doesn't violate the laws of physics. Um, but again, that's just due to, um, well, in many cases, it can be due to coincidence. So they're, they're yeah, okay. 
So that's what Harry Potter universes are. Are they finite or Aleph Null? Oh, um, I think neither. Aleph Null is this term used to label, I think, countable infinities. Countable infinities. But universes can't be ordered. They're not countable. They're uncountable. There's nowhere to start counting them. In the same way, there's nowhere to start counting the real numbers. You can count integers, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But real numbers, the real number plane, so the set of all decimals, there's nowhere to start. Where do you start? 0.1? Well, no, you can go smaller than that. 0.01. 0.001. So, yeah, the, the real numbers, the decimals, the fractions, uh, there's no smallest one, so you can't count them. So th that's not, even though it's an infinity, it's not Aleph, Aleph Null. Aleph Null or Aleph Nought uh, is the size of infinity that the integers occupy. But the real numbers is bigger than that. Is it 2 to the Aleph Null or something like that? No, I'm not great on number theory. Um, so whatever it is, it's bigger than Aleph Null. And I think that uh, in the case of Harry Potter universe, it's bigger for the same reason that any subset of universes is going to be uncannably infinite because our best theory suggests that the number of universes that existed at the beginning of time at the Big Bang is the same as now. It's just that they have differentiated over time. There's always been the, 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 this number of uncountably infinitely many universes. It's just that they all used to be absolutely perfectly identical, identical, fungible at the beginning of the universe and then began to differentiate over time and continue to differentiate over time. But for any slice of the multiverse, any universe, any object within the multiverse, there are uncountably infinitely many versions of it, uh, um, many of which will be absolutely uh, the same. And then you get variation as the universe is differentiated. So that gets technical. Um, I like Alfredo's little response to that. Aleph null bottles of beer on the wall. Aleph null bottles of beer on the wall. Take one down and pass it around. Aleph null bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> yes, sir. You remove one <laughs> from, from infinity and you've still got infinity left. It's one of these weird things about infinity. It's like, um, you know, are there more even numbers or are there more multiples of a billion? Well, most people would say, well, there's got to be more even numbers than there are multiples of a billion, but that's not true even for the integers because... For any even number, you can be given a, you can put in one-to-one -one correspondence with a multiple of a billion. So two, um, uh, a billion, uh, four, two billion, and so on. But for any even number you can think of, I can think of a multiple of a billion. So there are the same number of multiples of a billion as there are, same number of multiples of a billion as there are multiples of a thousand. It's strange because it's infinite in both cases. Yeah. Aleph null, in fact, in both cases. Uh, Christian Dean asks, uh, a conclusion I've come to after accepting Deutsch's principle of optimism is that I must cryogenically freeze my body at death because the problem of how to bring a frozen body back to life must be soluble. There are no alternatives. Am I wrong? Michael Golding said no. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know because I don't know. Um, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of questions to ask here. What does I mean in that case? If you cryogenically freeze a body and a brain and what some neuroscience says at the moment 
that the our way of doing this at the moment causes the um, water inside the cells to burst through the walls of the cell, destroying the cells, so that you know this would be a kind of information loss that the laws of thermodynamics would have something to say about. And if that's the case, then this is a um, a problem that can't be solved because there's a law of physics getting in the way. The law of physics possibly being one of the laws of thermodynamics saying, well, you know, the, the information that was in the brain. Now, maybe he's lost, but maybe a version of you can come back. Possibly not the same. Possibly you've lost a whole bunch of memories. Possibly you've lost some of your personality. So I don't know. I don't think anyone knows enough about this thing that happens at death to people. Um, what happens? I don't know. Um, it would be better if we could somehow or other uh, map to high fidelity all the connections in the neurons and store that in a computer somehow. Uh, I think that would be a preferable way of doing things uh, before, you know, instead of cryogenically freezing, you know. After all, whatever's going on in the brain is, is substrate independent, right? So what we're interested in is preserving the mind, so much the physical brain. Um, so if we could preserve the mind by copying the brain in some way to very high fidelity, you don't need to go about freezing things. You, you've got it on a disk somewhere <laughs> that is far more robust. But, uh, yeah, so I don't know. But, hey... As I say, I don't know. So if you're in a position where you can cryogenically freeze yourself and you can't avoid death, okay, that'll be my first plan. <laughs> avoid death in the first place so you don't have to worry about cryogenically freezing yourself. But if you are in a position to cryogenically freeze yourself at death, yeah, why not? Why not take, yeah, absolutely, yeah. If, you, if you've got the money like, I think, Walt Disney or whoever, absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't, as I say, I don't know. And so therefore in that situation, Take a bet, take a punt, and 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 yeah, freeze yourself. <laughs> Josh is next. Um, how should we think about the moral, institutional, and political questions of when to act on a new theory if stakes are high? How to find the right level of testing, criticism, and co corroboration before trying something that could cause or prevent huge misery, existential risk? It goes on to say. Bayesian epistemology and precautionary principle both purport to offer answers which may partly explain their success. How can we find better answers? Okay. How should we think about the moral, political questions of when to act on a new theory if stakes are high? How to find the right level of testing, criticism, and corroboration? That way of framing things is justificationist. It's saying that you've got this theory, but... Only if you've achieved a certain amount of testing or criticism or corroboration are you then kind of justified in using the theory. But this is the wrong way to think about things. If you have a problem, then presumably the theory is there as a solution to your problem. And the theory will be an explanation that will be good or it won't be good. So the question is not um, when to act on a theory. It's if you have a problem, do you have a solution? In which case, implement the solution. And if you don't have a solution, continue to be creative to come up with one. Um, before trying something that could cause or prevent huge misery, well, yeah, we'd need a specific example, okay? That, that it sounds like, yes, yeah, this is the intellectual's concern. 
AI, you know, the AI apocalypse is coming. Should we, um, uh, how should we think about AI given moral, institutional, political question, when to act on a theory of AI, let's say? Is that that's kind of what we might be hinting at here? But AI solves a problem. Now, yeah, so I, I have talked about this in, the, in fact, the last live stream and various other places at the risk of boring listeners. Um, I, I tend not to think in terms of so much the risks of any given solution, the risks of any given piece of technology, but rather the rate of progress is more important. I call the master problem the slowing of progress. So anyone who holds up a particular piece of technology or a particular solution and says of that thing, this thing's going to be the end of us, therefore we've got to slow down knowledge creation into this thing because it's going to be the black ball, as Bostrom would call it, that's going to wipe out humanity. Anytime someone does that, what they're saying is slow down progress. Slow down, people. Uh, we're creating knowledge too fast. We're solving problems at a rapid rate. I can't keep up, something like that. But I would say no, no. Uh, of course we don't want people to use technology in bad ways, but we need the technology first in order to solve problems. But knowledge is, as people have said before, power, and power can be used for good or evil. I am very reluctant um, to hand over decision-making about the use of any technology to moral um, and or moral institutions, let's say, like uh, churches, political institutions like governments, because they're just made of people. And so I think there needs to be a diversity of approaches. And if someone doesn't want a particular technology like AI, well, then they can have an island that rules out AI, let's say. But for the rest of us who think that AI is bringing many, many benefits, does it come with hazards? Sure. So does the ubiquitous spreading of food around the world. So does the internet. So does, name your thing, cars come with car accidents. Of course, we're told by intellectuals that AI is a special case. Haven't we been told that in the past about everything? It's that pessimist's archive on Twitter that, you know, you know, comes up with old news stories saying about how, you know, name your technology of the past. And there was an intellectual saying, this is going to be the end of civilization. And so we're at the point now where AI is the thing that's going to be the end of civilization. So, yeah, we don't need to go and have a particular level of testing, criticism and corroboration. Instead, we need to think in terms of problems and their solutions. What problem is being solved? Is it a good solution? What problems are being created? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bart. Bart has asked, what's the difference between reason and rationality? I don't think there's a strict accepted definition, uh, distinction to be made. The way I tend to use the words is reason is just an umbrella term for absolutely every subject that aims at trying to understand reality. So science is a special case of reason. It has special tools within it that allow us to understand the physical world. But history is a case of reason as well, where we're using special tools to try and understand what happened in the past. Morality is a form of reason. 
a way in which we can use reason, but also it is uh, part of reason at its best. And, you know, things that aren't moral are not using reason, unreasonable, let's say. Rationality is that word I would use to describe error correcting. And so it is a tool of reason. It's one of the tools of reason. So it's like, that's the way, that's the way. Now, other people may have different ones. You could obviously use them as synonyms in a sense. You know, you could say someone is reasonable, someone is rational. Similar kind of senses. But yeah, rationality seems to me to be more focused on, if someone's being rational, they're focused on uh, correcting errors, identifying correcting errors. Um, and so, but a person who's being anti-rational uh, or ir irrational, let's say, is not focused on correcting errors. Isn't, isn't concerned about the errors. Anti-rational is actively entrenching errors in some way. So it's about errors. That's why rationality is about errors. And reason is broader than that. The, the generation, perhaps, of good explanations might be what reason is more, more about. So it includes things like creativity and so on. John Mandelbauer has asked, um, why is it that anything we measure that confirms that angular momentum is not conserved, but we choose to believe it is conserved and not just measure anything? I don't understand that question, I'm afraid, John. Um, confirms that angular momentum is not conserved. Angular momentum is conserved. So I don't understand that. I may have to ask John or follow his link, which I'm not going to do now, unfortunately. Pathseeker has asked, what should one study after quantum mechanics? Uh, I don't think there's an answer to that question either. Um, there's certainly not a universal answer to that question. You know, one might study quantum mechanics and find out it was terribly boring. In which case, the answer is, you know, who knows what your interests are? Um, you know, so the answer could be poetry or gymnastics. Um, but I guess if you're asking, you're a physicist and you, you know, you've studied quantum mechanics, what should you do next? Well, again, that would be up to you. Um, I don't know. Um, but if you're, yeah, there's not, there's not much point giving you a study schedule because by the time anyone uh, finishes completing quantum mechanics, they will know way, 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 way more than any possible advisor of theirs would know about what they want to do next. You know, if you're asking today in 2022, um, should I study quantum mechanics? And I say, well, are you interested in it? And you say, yes. I said, well, okay, yes. What should I do after that? Well, you'll know <laughs> after a, uh, after six months, after two weeks of studying quantum mechanics, you might know that you don't like it or you do like it, but you really only like this stuff. You know, like we are talking about before, the, the different um, genres, I suppose, of quantum mechanics. Maybe you're more interested in the philosophical stuff. Maybe you're more interested in quantum computation. It's a broad, broad field. Maybe you're interested in the experimental stuff uh, more than the theoretical stuff. Uh, yeah, so again, not a universal answer to that. What do we say? Problems are parochial. And so if you have a particular interest in something like quantum mechanics, that's because you have a problem of what to, how to stimulate your curiosity. And quantum mechanics seems to be scratching that itch for you. Um, so yeah, but that's your problem, not my problem. And so therefore, I can't advise you what you should study after because you will have a different problem. You'll be in a different problem situation. Uh, Denisovich has asked, historically, dynamic societies have emerged when there was a tradition of criticism. 
But what exactly allows for such a tradition of criticism to emerge in the first place? Um, so dynamic societies are those ones that are where a tradition of criticism dominates, yes. What allows for the tradition of criticism to emerge in the first place? I don't think we know. We don't have a good history of optimism. One guess would be a, a simple rejection of dogma and authority. Okay, we begin there. It might not be a general tradition of criticism, but it might be a rejection of things like um, dogma. You know, people beginning to say, these ancient texts don't have all the answers. Can we not just adhere to what the text says? The holy book doesn't have all the answers. And that could begin, that might not begin, I might not bring on a wave of an entire tradition of criticism, but it could get the ball rolling, so to speak. Uh, rejecting authorities as they're understood, maybe rejecting the kings, uh, implementing a way of replacing leaders, democracy, okay? Like the ancient Greeks had a version of democracy, of replacing the rulers over time. Uh, and eventually, I guess enough of these little stones fall and then you have the avalanche of a tradition of criticism where then everything is opened up for uh for criticism, for improvement, for progress. And then you have the, the, the panopticon way of dealing with problems. That so you don't just consult authorities and dogmas. Instead, you rely on individuals to deal with their problems and experts to be advisors. Uh, but, you know, we have two steps forward, one step back sometimes. You know, recently, maybe the experts have become an expert class. And instead of, uh, them providing us with kind wisdom and advice couched in fallibilist terms, maybe they're coming to us more as authorities again, which is not good. Um, so we have to guard against that. Um, any threat to a tradition of criticism where some people are, in some people's words, are held immune from criticism because they're experts, let's say. You can't defy expert advice let's say, would be uh, ant uh, antithetical to a tradition of criticism. But what allows for it to emerge in the first place? I would just, I don't know, and the history would have to be written of this, but I, I guess it has to start somewhere with someone questioning something and others agreeing, and it could be things like, you know, questioning received wisdom, doctrines, dogmas, and the, the authorities in a society. Um Triple dollar sign asks, <laughs> what does it exactly mean for a guest to survive criticism error correction? Because, for example, Newton's theory of gravity has been falsified, but he's still knowledge. In other words, when can a theory be considered to have survived criticism? Yeah, so knowledge doesn't mean you have to have survived criticism. You might very well have been refuted, but it still counts as knowledge. Why? Because one way of explaining what knowledge is not the only way, but one way is it's information that solves a problem. Okay, so knowledge is information that solves a problem. It might be false. The explanation might be false. It's no longer a good explanation, but it solves the problem for what you're interested in. Uh, you you want to get your rocket to the moon, you can use Newton's theory of gravity, though it's been falsified, technically falsified. It allows you to make sufficiently good predictions to do the job. It solves the problem you're interested in. It still counts as knowledge. 
When can a theory be considered to have survived criticism? Well, just in those cases where it's not refuted by <laughs> criticism, by the charge that it's a bad explanation or by experimental refutation. Um, and so, yeah, what does it mean exactly? I, I Yeah, I can't, it's, it's one of those things where I guess Wittgenstein would say, um, you know, uh, my spade is turned. Uh, in other words, I don't know how to further break down what does it mean for something to survive criticism. Uh, it, it just means that all attempts, all creative attempts by people to shoot this thing down have failed. That doesn't mean it will continue <laughs> to be in that position of um, being unable to be criticised. In fact, we should expect all of our knowledge to eventually um, be successfully criticised in some way, shape or form, and thereby improved. Uh, Tadas asks, what do you think makes a good meme resonate with other humans and spread across widely? So I don't think a meme to spread needs necessarily to resonate with other humans. And the reason for that is because many memes are inexplicit. That's one thing. We can't actually articulate out loud what they are. And also are not good for us. So they're not resonating for us as such. Whatever resonate. Resonate sounds like it's got this... Oh, hold on. Tadis has said, what do you think makes a good meme resonate with other humans? Okay, apologies. So a bad meme is, of course, something anti-rational, but Tadis hasn't asked that. He's asked what makes a good meme resonate with other humans. When it's, well, it just comes back to knowledge. A meme is a kind of idea that gets replicated uh, because people um, are able to uh, copy the behaviour of others and, you know, whether that's their words or, you know, uh, whatever it happens to be, the meme. The meme propagates by being copied into the minds of other people. Why would a good meme resonate when it solves problems for people? When it solves problems for people. Memes, ideas, knowledge, okay, a lot of under understanding this stuff. It all comes under that uh, same umbrella. I think I've used the word umbrella three times now. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, if, if the meme is useful... Um, if it solves a problem, then it's going to resonate with other humans. And solving the problem doesn't have to be like, well, you know, you know, solving some engineering problem or something like that. It can be solving the problem of what's fun, what makes you laugh, okay? Um, I feel like having a laugh, you know, like, well, that jokes will get spread and, you know, the literal internet memes will spread because they're solving the problem of entertaining people who are otherwise bored. So, yeah. When it solves a problem, I would say, is the, the main thing. Um, Likesh is next. Um, he asks, not sure if I can frame this idea into a proper question, but I was wondering, according to our current knowledge, our timeline goes like, there was a big bang, galaxies, solar system, stars and planets formed, conditions permitted, so life arose on Earth and finally evolution, basically through trial and error, made us who who we are. So based on this, I think we could say that we are here by chance and because conditions permitted and not by design. Now let's assume that there exists a multiverse. So if I'm not wrong, that could mean that there exists a very large number, possibly close to infinity of Earths like ours, but with slight variations in each one. So finally, my question was, doesn't this sound more plausible if say we're actually in a simulation grand experiment of some sort? You know, 
in which the underlying code basically instructs to form X number of variations of the universe with slight variations in each one. If we assume that a multiverse exists, doesn't it basically imply that all of it is by design and not by chance? That's just a question floating around in my mind. I understand the logic behind my question could be flawed. Um, so what I would say is um, all, your, uh, all that says is the multiverse is true, quantum theory and everything we understand is true, but onto that, we're going to graft, we're going to add this assumption that it all exists inside of a computer rather than just going with realism, okay? Realism is the claim that, well, science is giving us um, the correct knowledge, true knowledge, some true knowledge about reality, approximately true knowledge about reality. But if it's all a simulation, then knowledge, the process of knowledge creation isn't giving us true knowledge about reality, but rather what's going on inside the simulation. Reality is outside of the simulation. Now, if you listen to um, my last podcast about the fabric of reality, or indeed you read, I think it's chapter six, Universality and the Limits of Computation from the Fabric of Reality, David explains there that if you were in a simulation, then unless the simulation was able to um, uh, sort of uh, simulate to the level of fidelity reality, then the people inside the simulation would eventually find out that strings were being pulled in some way, shape or form, that there was an external reality. They'd be able to do experiments in order to find out that um, – that, that at least something was outside of the universe because that's what people do, okay? We're universal explainers. We're going to encounter a problem for which the only way of solving it requires us to refer to a reality outside of the reality we inhabit. So this is a kind of a refutation of that solipsistic view which related to solipsism, right? So, I no, I'm not going to go with you to where it says, doesn't that basically imply it is all by design? No, not at all. I mean, you're just adding on that your feeling is, you said it sounds more plausible if we're actually in a simulation. It doesn't sound more plausible to me at all. <laughs> it doesn't at all. It sounds more plausible to me that we're not in a simulation because the simulation, just like we're dreaming at all, is just an assumption on top of realism is true. Um, you know, reality exists. It, it consists of everything that actually does exist. Um Science is giving us some knowledge about that reality. We're not in a simulation. But if we are in a, if you're going to push the argument that we are in a simulation, you're basically saying you agree with realism that science works as it would normally would, but we're just going to add on the extra assumption, the extra axiom that it's all in a simulation. And, you know, Occam's razor, I suppose, if we want to refer to that, you know, um, all else being equal, just eliminate the unnecessary assumptions. It doesn't add anything. It actually detracts from what we know of reality. Um, yeah. So I think that in. Denisovich, again. <laughs> what do you think of the claims that people are born with certain traits such as being compassionate, hardworking, and creative? Uh, okay. Or that some people are born capable of excelling at algebra or speaking French. Are these good explanations or simply bad explanations? There's a sense in which I can answer yes and no to this, okay? People are born with the capacity to do anything, and that includes being compassionate, hardworking, creative. Do we have inborn ideas? Yes, I think we do. 
What those are, I don't think we have much of a clue about. But yeah, we must be born with some ideas. We're not born as blank slates, but those ideas that we're born with are themselves changeable. This is the third way I keep speaking about. There's this great debate that goes on. Are we born with blank slates or are we born with ideas and therefore are our ideas genetically determined in some way and they just determine our behavior? Well, these are not the only two options we have. We could be born with ideas that can be changed by what? By us, people who are universal explainers. And a universal explainer can be compassionate, hardworking, and creative. Certainly creative. I think everyone's born being creative. I was listening to Joe Rogan interview Mark Andreessen today, his latest podcast, and Joe was, you know, pushing back against Mark. Mark was saying everyone's creative, very optimistic, saying very optimistic things. You know, his in his experience, you know, people are creative. In my experience too. But Joe said, "No, I can introduce you to some people who aren't." Well, that's incorrect. Okay, what what counts as creativity? It's a low bar, right? A lot of people aren't using their creativity for composing music and theories of cosmology and poetry and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, to, to some observers, they would say that person isn't creative. I think that's just wrong. People can be creative raising a family. People can be creative, um, you know, um, laying tar on the road. People can be creative in any area of life, human life. Even in, there's no, like David Deutsch says in the beginning of Infinity, you know, there's this idea that, you know, um, invention is, you know, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. But even the perspiration phases for a human being are creative. People can think of new and better ways to automate or make easier those perspiration phases. We're, we're not like artificial intelligence. We're not like robots. We, we, we are able to be creative at every step of any process and any time we problem solve and so on and so forth. So, yeah, people are definitely born creative, but they can use that creativity to be compassionate or not be compassionate, be hardworking or not, not hardworking. Whether they're born compassionate or not is, is another thing. You know, this Hobbesian view that perhaps people are born just bad and it's very hard to teach them not to be bad. They're born not compassionate and it's hard to teach them to be compassionate. I, I disagree with that. But that's a whole other discussion. Some people are born capable of excelling at algebra or speaking French. Everyone's born capable of excelling at algebra or speaking French. Everyone. It's just that I would say very early on in our life, we have experiences. Yeah, when I say very early on, I mean perhaps before, just before birth, perhaps just after birth, that can shape what we're interested in. Some of us are drawn more towards colors because we're shown bright colors. Some of us are drawn more towards uh, feeling solid versus liquid, uh, investigating the world in uh, different ways very early on, which can shape what, as adults, we go on to be interested in. Some might be very, very interested in, you know, mummy and daddy writing stuff. Ah, that text stuff looks interesting. Of course, they're not thinking that in words. Some might be interested in looking outside uh, at the sky. Yeah. These things very early on, you know, perhaps weeks, can, can definitely, I would say, shape the mind of a person and therefore um, 
cause them to either go down the road of excelling at, let's say, languages or excelling at mathematics or excelling at building stuff or excelling at who knows what whatever the thing is. Um, yeah. But I would not say that people are born inherently incapable of anything. And even if you do have these experiences early on that shape what you do, uh, look at that mathematician who won the Fields Medal, the, the, the story that went around about he felt he didn't like mathematics. He became a poet for a while. It wasn't until late in undergraduate or something like that at university, he realized he did like doing mathematics and became one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. Was he born incapable of doing mathematics? Clearly not. But many, many people would look at his story, perhaps the first, I don't know, 15 years of his life, and if they had have met him at 15, they would have said, you've got no hope of being a mathematician. Stick to your poetry because he didn't show any interest in mathematics. So therefore, he probably didn't do particularly, who knows, I don't know exactly how well he did in tests. But I know there are situations like that. Brian Cox talks about, you know, the, the science communicator physicist, particle physicist, who says that he got a D on his, was it A-levels in mathematics? And I think, you know, the grades are A, B, C, D. E is a fail or something. So he just passed. Proof positive, you can be a great physicist, science communicator, mathematically very, very literate, competent, lecturing people in undergraduate physics, and yet barely pass your year 12 mathematics exam. Great example. Wonderful example. There are many such examples of this. Faraday apparently couldn't do maths very well. So all that says is that people can pick up certain things later on in life. And if you think you are incapable of maths or incapable of languages or incapable of something, there's just a block there. It's not that genetically you're not wired for it. It's that you don't care enough. You're not interested enough. But if you had the problem that required the interest, then you would. You would. Clearly, Brian Cox didn't have the problem at the time when he left year 12 at school of needing to do maths really well. But later on, he figured out, hey, I like this physics stuff. Now I've got a problem because this physics stuff is written in the language of mathematics. I better learn mathematics to a more competent level. And then he probably found that he actually enjoyed it. I know that was my experience. I've had that experience many times. So there's certain courses forced to do at university for the sake of getting the degree in physics and not liking and then choosing other areas of mathematics and finding out, hey, I actually like this area of mathematics. This is fun to do. You know, specifically the stuff on like logic and computation. Uh, I liked. I like. I loved doing that sort of stuff. It was interesting. I wanted to understand things like Gödel's incompleteness theorem. I wanted to understand how to program a Turing machine. So that then made maths really interesting to me. A lot of the other stuff, not so much. Okay. Um, uh, uh, partial differential equations, take it or leave it. <laughs> a lot of the stuff in classical mechanics, Newtonian mechanics, the, the, the heavy mathematics that you're required to learn in order to do some of these really complicated stuff in Newtonian mechanics, really complicated stuff, uh, gives people nightmares. That's <laughs> so really hard. Um, and surprisingly, you know, you can go into quantum computation and the mathematics is not hard. And yet in Newtonian mechanics, it can be hard. It just depends on what you're interested in. Yeah, okay. Um, so I don't think people are born with certain traits. Alex, Alex Gierev, um, has asked, if creativity consists of variation of existing ideas, what is your opinion on using spaced repetition software to enhance creativity by preventing forgetting? Uh, 
and thereby accumulating a larger pool of ideas which can be adapted as solutions to new problems. No doubt it works for some people, something like that. Um, enhancing creativity. I mean, there's just, there's been so much work done on this and I don't think there's a universal answer. Some people work really fast. Some people work really slow. Some people work all day. Some people work in short bursts. Um, you know, Naval has that thing of saying work um, uh, like a lion, not like a, I don't know, what, what's the other thing? <laughs> the, the thing that sort of works all day. You know, a lion, you know, sleeps under the shade most of the day and then uh, does the thing that it wants to do, you know, it goes and chases the antelope. Work like that, especially as a creative person. Perhaps. I know I tend to find that I like that method. Um, but there are other people who are very creative who are obviously following a much more rigorous schedule and that works for them. So I don't think that, but if something works for you and you you feel like, you know, I can feel like this, you know, the creativity is just not coming that particular day for whatever reason. I mean, yeah, doing something different absolutely can help. Absolutely is the thing to do rather than just focusing on trying to allow the creativity to come. Sometimes it doesn't. And so, yeah, just changing your mind and changing your um, your place, uh, any number of these things can certainly help. So space repetition software, yeah, okay, try that, sure. Hamza has asked, can you elaborate on Deutsch's view on IQ? I understand that collections exist everywhere, but IQ seems to be a strong indicator of success. Some communities seem to produce more stellar thinkers within STEM. What is the explanation for this? Surely it cannot just be interests. Can you elaborate on Deutsch's view of IQ? No, I don't. I can't. I don't. I don't speak for David, so I don't know what his view of IQ is. So I'll give you what my view is. Um, I understand that correlations exist everywhere, but I, IQ is a strong indicator of success. Yes, I agree with the people who say people who score high on IQ tests tend to be successful in society. There's no argument with that. The argument is. Is IQ, our IQ test, measures of intelligence or measures of creativity? These are different things. Even if the IQ tests are, the results are consistent over time and predict, are predictive of success in society, you fit into society. Great. You can climb the corporate ladder. Great. You can be an engineer. Great. All of that just means it's a certain kind of knowledge that IQ tests are measuring, how well a person fits into society. Now, if you want to call that kind of knowledge intelligence, fine. But then there's something deeper about people. Call it universal explaining. Call it creativity, which is much deeper. Now, I happen to think that, you know, if we're going to properly use the word intelligence, then what we mean is creativity. And I don't think there are differences between people. There's differences between people, as Popper said, in the little bits of knowledge they have but we are all infinitely ignorant. You know, famous stories of mathematicians and physicists who did brilliant work, but unfortunately also lived up to the stereotype of being a little bit crazy. Yeah. Girdle is one. So why? Because although these people have great amounts of knowledge and proficiency in certain areas and can even think quickly in certain areas, they can be deficient, heavily deficient in other areas. Does that mean they're not intelligent? Or they are intelligent. Does Gödel's mathematics make him intelligent, but his constant paranoia 
make him unintelligent? I don't think it's the right question. I think that intelligence should just be a qualitative measure of whether or not someone is whether or not our system is capable of creating new explanations. If that's the definition of intelligence, and it should be if for something like SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what we're really searching for there is people. We're searching for entities that are universally explainers, like us. I think that's a good definition of intelligence, in which case there's not a sliding grayscale. It's black or white. Either they can do it or they can't do it. Animals, other animals on planet Earth can't generate explanations. They can't be creative in the way that we can. We people are unique on the face of this planet. We can all create explanations. And I'm not just talking about the successor to, the successor of the unification of quantum theory and general relativity. That's not what explanations are only. They also include explanations about what do you think is the best thing for you to cook for dinner tonight? You have an explanation for that. What is the explanation for how you get to work each day? There's an explanation for that. You're generating explanations constantly. You can turn this creative capacity of yours onto anything. That's what intelligence is. There's not a gray scale of it. Either you can do it or you can't. Now, can some people come up with better explanations than others? It depends upon the particular area they're interested in. But as a general measure, okay, you either are able to do that thing or you can't do that thing. So I don't buy into IQ for that reason. Okay, I think it's a silly way of talking about people, reducing people to a number. I think it's immoral besides everything else. Aside from useless, I think if if you've got a job and you're offering it to people, either the candidate is a good, friendly, reliable, gregarious person, willing to learn, perhaps has some background knowledge that you require, or they don't. This whole idea that IQ tests are in some way useful <laughs> in trying to assess employees, ridiculous. You're never going to have two people who are exactly equal and you're going to have to split them based on IQ. Uh, you know, another way of looking at IQ is uh, this person is uh, scoring high on the IQ test because they've practiced lots of IQ style questions. And maybe the IQ test also measures for conformity, but maybe you don't want conformity. Maybe you want someone who thinks outside the box and so can second guess the IQ test and thinks beyond what the IQ test creators, the creators of the test thought. You know, these tests are made up by psychologists, among others. Can you think like a psychologist? <laughs> what you think the best answer is. So, yeah, I don't... Yeah, you can rank order people based on maths tests, on history tests, on IQ tests. Name whatever the test happens to be, and you will get a rank order of people but it doesn't really point to anything truly deep about a person. It points to a specific kind of knowledge that they have. That's all. Mathematics tests point to mathematical knowledge. IQ tests point to supposedly a broad range of knowledge and might be predictive of certain things. Lots of things are predictive. It's also predictive if you're um, brought up in a certain kind of household as well. But are you going to employ someone on the basis of that? Okay. So. Anakit has asked, read any good fiction lately? Uh, these, I'm getting to the age now where I used to read a lot of fiction. 
I'm getting to the age now where I don't know, I'm more nostalgic and I read, I reread things more often than I read new things when it comes to fiction, when I need time off from reading all the other non fiction stuff that I'm doing. So, yeah, I read Lord of the Rings now and again, um, sort of every couple of years. I read, um, <laughs> I reread that. Uh, Christopher Lee, who played Saruman in The Lord of the Rings, said he would read Lord of the Rings once a year. Because you're, 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 I find I'm transported to the world. Talk about running virtual reality renderings of places. That Tolkien, with language, was is able to do that. Has been able to do that. And so I read. I love reading Tolkien's works. Um, you know, a drizzly grey day with Lord of the Rings, um, uh, sitting by a heater, looking out the window. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but I read Star Wars, Star Wars Extended Universe stuff. The Godfather, the Godfather series is fantastic. Hannibal, all the, 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 the Science of the Lambs uh, book. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I've reread those recently. And in terms of new fiction, nothing new recently. I'm not a huge science fiction fan. I do read some, as I say, Star Wars Extended Universe. But the thing I like about Star Wars is it is very much within the fantasy genre. Uh, they don't care about the laws of physics. Even with hard science fiction, I always find difficulty with when they start breaking the laws of physics sometimes they don't but when they do i just think how does this really work okay yeah but there's as david points out in one of the books um uh, there is objectively better and worse science fiction and fiction generally um if you're but you know you can call yourself science fiction, but you're not. Star Wars is the perfect example. In fact, I would say Star Trek <laughs> is is fantasy, not science fiction. Um, because, the, you know, saying that the way in which you travel beyond the speed of light requires gravity dampers, but you never actually explain how the gravity dampers work. That's fantasy. You're in a world of fantasy. You're not in a world of um, science fiction as such. Because science fiction, I would say, is, well, here are the laws specifically. There are some people to do that. I think Greg Egan does that. Um, uh, Adil has asked, Brett, do mentally gifted challenged children owe their proclivities to differences in hardware, processing speed, memory, input, output, or to differences in software? Different interests and why? Well, firstly, I don't know um, would be the first answer. There would have to be differences between people in terms of the hardware, yes. I think that the hardware can be, you know, this whole thing of neuroplasticity is, I think, speaking to the fact that we can change our hardware. We can change our hardware in some way. We can change the speed and we can change the memory. People can be taught how to be uh, brilliant with their memory. You know, you see these YouTube things of people being able to, recite you know pi to a certain number of thousand decimal places or something or other or just have really good memory be given a list of 60 items random items and then be able to recite them back immediately and i've seen you know people talk about how they used to have a terrible memory and then they use these techniques and they became good at memory so you can train your memory now memory is hardware so there must be a way of growing that part of the brain just by repetition and so the hardware can respond to what the software is doing. This is why a human being is so unusual and strange in terms of they definitely obey the laws of physics and so therefore conform to computational universality. But that's not to say we're like any other computer in existence. We're not. 
you know, any other computer can't make choices, can't be creative, doesn't have free will, whatever, however you want to put that, isn't conscious, as far as we know. Um, but it might very well be the case, I don't know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I don't think any neuroscientist knows this yet, that we can actively grow parts of the brain, obviously unconsciously, um, and uh, so um, differences in hardware, memory, software, yeah, I think that could explain some. I think that the people who are labelled as challenged, let's say, may have very short memories. That could potentially be developed, but maybe aren't over time for whatever reason. Maybe their clock speed or effective clock speed of regions of the brain is slower. Maybe. Maybe that could be changed over time as well. Maybe not. So maybe some people are limited in that way. Not to say limited in, 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 in explanatory universality. They're still, in principle, could understand anything that's understandable, but likely won't show interest in it because they'll get bored very easily. And so boredom and interest might very well have, uh, you know, there might be uh, something to do also with, you know, how fast the neurons are firing, which is a matter of hardware. But in principle, they could, you know, pay attention for long enough and understand the thing. So I don't know. Um, but I think that when it comes to gifted people, certainly, I think that early on they gain crucial knowledge and they gain crucial knowledge, therefore gain, so background knowledge, especially in things like mathematics, they understand things at a very young age, perhaps as toddlers, that many of us don't understand until we're teens or later. And so therefore, they've got this massive head start. Now, precisely what those things are, we don't know, because so much knowledge is inexplicit. And because it's inexplicit, that means it's very, very difficult to teach by virtue of the fact that you can't tell someone how to do the thing. It's inexplicit. And so, but but children are, um, are faster learners, not because their brains are faster, this is a related topic, but rather because they're unencumbered by anti-rational memes. This is my idea anyway. <laughs> well, I don't know if it originates with me, but this is the what this is what when people ask me about, but you know, children learn so much faster, they learn language faster and so on, they can learn anything faster. They show interest and curiosity and everything. Why can't we keep that up as adults? Because we learn things that actively cause us to slow down our learning. What great irony and unfortunate that we pick up this baggage along the way from schooling, teaching, uh, from other adults in life, perhaps even just other kids that we grow up with as well. We're made to feel bad about learning over time, and so we become worse learners over time. We we gain anti-rational memes. Anti-rational memes are these things that withhold themselves, cause us to withhold things from criticism. As a kid, we don't care. We're, we're, we've got, in some sense, no shame, no fear, no embarrassment, or very minimum amounts of that. And as we get older, we do have fear. We get shame and embarrassment. And so we're less likely to try as hard and persistently for as long for fear that we're going to appear stupid, uh, let's say, is one example. You know, I have this. I often talk about my inability <laughs> to learn languages. And I know it's a software issue. <laughs> I know precisely what the issue is. I get embarrassed in trying 
and then I get bored because I, I can't make the sounds that need to be made. And I try and try and I get it wrong. And the more I try, the sillier I sound, I just think I give up. <laughs> Tired of making myself sound stupid. And that's that's a pro- I know what the problem is. And I know I could just try harder and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing that slows people down from learning. Okay. Learning what bores you. <laughs> Children don't know what bores them yet. They haven't figured it out yet. Everything's exciting. But eventually, you know, they're just by virtue of the fact that there's only so many hours in the day. Uh, you rule certain things out. They're really interested in this thing, less interested in this thing. And the thing that is slightly less interesting becomes increasingly less interesting over time as other people tend to develop those skills and you don't. You tend to preserve the interest in the thing that you are best at and excel at and perhaps uh, is more rare in your social circle, let's say, among other things. Okay, so I'm just going to scroll back up through the... um, chat here because I've not paid attention apart from to Adil's questions. Um, uh, John Julius Jamora asked about an hour ago now, more than an hour. Complete noob here. I just want to uh, use math effectively on day-to-day scenarios. Where do I start? Any book recommendations? No. Uh, Although I taught maths for a long time, um, no, I think there are much better people to ask uh, than myself uh, for that. It depends on what area of math. Maths is such a broad area. Like, are you just talking being able to do mental arithmetic? Um, uh, there's that Arthur Benjamin guy. Arthur Benjamin, the uh, mathematician, he calls himself. Look him up on YouTube. He's done TED Talks. Fantastic. Amazing. He's got a course out there for how to do mental arithmetic better. You know, he'd be a much better person to... Um, consult about something like that, just pick up his course. But otherwise, you know, uh, math on a day-to-day scenarios. Again, what is your day-to-day scenario? Are you working in home loans, let's say, you know, in which case how to figure out percentages and decimals and stuff? Um, yeah, so I don't think there's a simple answer to that. Any book recommendations? You know, uh, for all the terribleness of the school system, the textbooks are usually quite good, right? So if you are an adult who feels like you want to know maths, I'd pick up a school high school textbook. Absolutely. Uh, they're written, that, that, and it's been, uh, there are better and worse ones, of course, but by virtue of the fact that the, the textbooks have been through this filter of kids either saying this is a good textbook, this is a bad textbook, Textbooks today are so much better than they were in the past and they continue to get better over time. I mean, they could be better still, but you know what I mean? Um, One of the few areas of schooling that shows objective improvements over time. Science texts, math texts, with some steps back, you know, as I say, two steps forward, one step back now and again. You know, there there is um, uh, politics being injected into certain textbooks now. But that aside, broadly speaking, if you want to learn any of the sciences, you want to learn mathematics, the, the, these areas, then, yeah, school textbooks um, would be a way to go. Um, see. <laughs> Spell solo. How to be wealthy. Um, I don't know. That's a question for Naval Ravikant. Didn't, he's written... Uh, well, his book, <laughs> Naval's Almanac, um, or his 
podcasts or the Twitter thread, how to be rich. I would go to that. I'm not, I am no authority on that. <laughs> I hand that over to someone else. Um, F the bald guy has asked, what are your current thoughts on cryptocurrency? Are the ups and downs simply the normal behavior of any system going through evolution? Yeah, uh, it's here to stay. It's here to stay. It's here to stay in the same way that computers are here to stay. And naysayers are the same, you know, you always get naysayers with new technology. It's proven itself now. Crypto has proven itself. There is a critical mass of people. Sufficient numbers are out there now that, yeah, there's been a downturn, but there's been a downturn across the financial markets thanks to poor policy decisions. So everything's turned down. But crypto is one of those things, but it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Uh, sure, some of the coins, the, the, the crappy coins are going to go, shit coins. But the, the generally speaking, you know, Bitcoin and I'd say Ethereum are absolutely here to stay. Blockchain technology is here to stay. People want currencies that allow them to escape, as Naval says, allow them to escape from the Fed, allow them to escape from authorities that can intervene in transactions. Instead, we have peer-to-peer -peer financial transactions possible now with this thing that no one else has to know about. Uh, you know, so this is the way things are going increasingly. Um, sure, in reaction, governments of the world, authorities of the world are reacting. But there is this great struggle now between authoritarianism and libertarianism. The libertarians aren't going anywhere. They might have suffered defeats here and there, but they're not going to approach zero asymptotically. In the long run, I think it's the only way to go is individualism. And that means things like crypto. So, yeah, crypto is just... Uh, the ups and downs are, yes, the normal behavior of any new system. Yes, going through evolution. But it's absolutely here to stay, not because it's a get-rich-quick scheme or anything like that, but because it's a way of storing value independent of existing mechanisms where especially uh, third parties can intervene, in particular governments. That's what some of us like about this thing anyway that's the main reason for it that's the main reason for it okay now every way of storing value has problems okay you can store value in gold you can store value in a house you can store value in you know, goods and whatever they all have liabilities crypto has liabilities but it's 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 a method of storing value that's all a big, you know sort of big deal in a sense but um revolutionary in the other sense that is it's far more on the side of individuals and creativity and independence and anti-authority and liberty and so on all that stuff Jonathan Hirsch, is there anything Deutsch has wrong? He seems spot on with nearly everything he says. I agree. You know, I think I had this question last time. Um, my, re <laughs> my response was, I think David Deutsch, he likes a cup of tea, but he likes tea bags. I don't know if I'm speaking out of school and saying that, but I like the leaves. I think he's objectively wrong if he doesn't like loose leaf tea over tea bags, but that would be a question for him. I think he's objectively wrong on that. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but in terms of the serious point, um, well, this is why I promote the ideas and why I think it's important to do so is that I wouldn't do it if David Deutsch was super, super well-known. If he had, you know, 50 million Twitter followers, this was probably a lower bound on what he should have, then I wouldn't need to do what I do. But because his work is relatively unknown, it's well-known by some physicists who work in the area. It's well-known by people in a certain community. But broadly speaking, it's not as well-known. It's... And, and it, it is the philosophy of optimism, his work, the philosophy of progress, incremental progress, um, error correction, knowledge creation, solving of problems, all of that. Why it hasn't received the traction it has, I don't know. Some of the ideas are subtle, but the more people that can be out there approaching the the countering, as I like to say, the countering of the dominant culture, which is a pessimistic culture, the better. Uh, but within the people that counter pessimistic culture in a rational way, okay, so you've got the intellectual class, I suppose. The dominant strand of the intellectual class are, are far and away pessimists, right? And so you've got this small number of people who are optimists and pushing back against the pessimists but they're smaller number. It's probably like a one to five ratio or something like that when it comes to intellectual life. I mean, just look at, pick a podcast, not mine, <laughs> pick, a, pick a typical podcast that interviews people and then look at the list of intellectuals that you have on and listen, you know, add up how many pessimists versus optimists, how many people are saying all the ways in which civilization is going to hell in a handbasket, all the people who are saying, here's all the ways we're going to die from alien invasion or AI apocalypse or climate change catastrophe or ge genetic accident, or virus, whatever. Now, compare those people to the optimists, okay? I think it's like a one to four, one to five ratio, something like that. But within that group of people who push back, an even tinier percentage of those are aware of David Deutsch. Or insofar as they're aware, they're not really all in on the worldview, as we call it. There are optimists out there, but to, to take um, you know, people who are very closely allied, Steven Pinker, okay, great optimist. But there is pessimistic stuff in his work. You know, the, the very next podcast, which should come out tomorrow, I think is about the next chapter of his book. I think it's chapter five, subtitled Bayesian Reasoning. And it's that kind of reasoning that leads to people becoming prophets, thinking they can prophesy, and therefore they tend towards pessimism. So the intellectuals, their dominant epistemology is one which naturally gravitates towards prophecy, which itself naturally gravitates towards pessimism. So this is the problem we have uh, in intellectual circles. And so, yeah, the, the, the community of people promoting the work of David Deutsch occupies this tiny, tiny sliver of optimist, generally speaking, which itself is a very minority view amongst all intellectual movements that exist and that have any kind of influence on things like politics and things like culture at the moment. Far and away, we are dominated by pessimism.
Hmm. Um, uh, nature lover, what's importance of probability in physics and real life? Not important. Uh, yeah, see, see my podcast on probability, risk and reward, that kind of thing um, for this. But probability was designed, invented, to understand the results of games of chance, okay? rolling dice, playing cards, gambling. But even there, it's only an approximation to what really happens. That's the first thing. The fact that it was then taken from there, from that very parochial thing about how gambling works, and applied to wildly diverse areas, like how to assess risk, how to understand quantum theory, financial markets, the fact that it was used as a model for all of those things, great mistake, great error. It, it doesn't track physical reality at all. And so I've done podcasts on this. David Deutsch has done a lecture on this. So I've done a podcast breaking down the lecture. Probability is a scam. I think David has said it at some point. It does nothing actually ablaze the probability calculus, not even the uh, things in a casino. They only approximately do, but that's not reality. It's, it's kind of like Newtonian gravity. Now, can you use probability to make some decisions? Yeah, like should you place a bet on the lottery? No. Why? Because the probability is exceedingly low approximately of you winning it. <laughs> you shouldn't gamble. But, you know, your problem situation might be just to have fun. Okay. You know, I, um, <laughs> I have been known to gamble with my brothers now and again. It's fun. It's just fun to do. Um, uh, what else have we got? Um, Paul Eloff. Hi, Brett. Do you plan on recording a deep dive into constructor theory papers? I would personally enjoy to hear someone else's thoughts as they go through these papers, CT Life in particular. Oh, look, maybe, maybe after I've done... Chiara Marletto's book, The Science of Kanakar, once I've completed that, I think I've got another chapter to go on that. So that serves, I think, as a reasonable introduction to uh, constructive theory for the layperson. I'm a layperson in all of these things. Um, so, and there are a number of good interviews out there with Chiara in particular, her collaborators. Um, Logan Chipkin is someone who has interviewed Chiara it has a podcast out there with her. I think Sean Carroll interviewed Kiara about a constructor theory as well. So there are some good interviews out there with the people working on it. And I think they've broken down some of the stuff uh, very, very well. So what I could add to that, I, I don't know, um, beyond what I already have, but never say never, I suppose. So yeah, quite possibly. Uh, New England Barbell. Hi, Brett. What is or was the most mind-bending, mind-expanding concept that you have tried to comprehend or, and, or comprehended? What is the most mind-bending thing? I don't know about most, but I know what the experience is like um, of mind-bendingness. And I remember when the most profound, the most, the, I think the first time I felt it you know, you go through school and you're learning stuff that everyone else is learning. And so I can't remember. I guess my mind must have been blown at various points throughout school and learning about the universe, even when I was very young, you know, five, six years old or something. And so you have this experience of, oh, 
there's more than just a planet. Oh, there's a universe and the universe might go on forever. Maybe that was mind bending, but I don't remember. I remember reading Descartes' meditations in the first year of university when I was like 17, 18. And I remember the sensation of understanding for the first time what he was saying about you can doubt everything. And that was phenomenal. Because up until then, I'd had the experience only of, well, you know, you can find out that certain things are true and you don't need to doubt them anymore. But Descartes explains in the meditations you can. And it was like the floor falling away from underneath you when you begin to feel as if, wow, a lot of what I previously thought has just come into question. And then he has this profound thing of, but in the act of doubting, you exist. And so that's the one thing you can't doubt. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Now, of course, I reject that now. Now I have criticisms of Descartes. But at that that point, it was a profoundly mind-bending, expanding experience. It was fallibilism almost. He just didn't go the extra step. And so then, you know, the the next time I had that experience, the next time I had that was because I was going through university learning quantum theory, among other things, but quantum theory in particular, and just struggling to understand what the heck does any of this mean? The lecturers weren't helping. Even my great hero, Paul Davies, wasn't helping. Reading his books wasn't helping. And, And I've told this story many times. I picked up The Fabric of Reality, got to Chapter 2, Red Shadows, And there it was. I mean, there was the explanation of what's going on in quantum theory, in the interference experiments. Suddenly it was clear. Exactly what the day was and the moment was, I don't know. I just remember the sensation was exactly the same as I had with Descartes because I immediately understood, oh, quantum theory implies a multiverse. Mind expanding, mind bending stuff. So whether or not that's the most, but th- those two things stand out in my mind. And I've had that, you know, again, you know, you read the beginning of infinity, you have it again, you know, in various ways. Uh, you, coming to understand something that totally shifts your worldview in some way. In the case of quantum mechanics, mind expanding because you realize, wow, okay, so every possibility really exists out there in some way. That's the multiverse. That's what quantum mechanics, and that makes sense. And then realizing, well, that's astonishing, but also at the same time, well, it's just the latest step in the trend that's been going on in human civilization, coming to understand our place in reality. You know, we live on an Earth. Well, the Earth is actually part of a solar system. Well, solar system is part of a galaxy. Galaxy is part of a wider universe. Ah, the universe is part of a multiverse. Okay, so. Yeah. So although some people reject it, I just think, well, it's the next step. But still mind-bending. Okay, so that's where we are with that. <laughs> Hello. Is the world more or less dangerous when everyone has a universal constructor under their mattress? Cheers. <laughs> um, less dangerous. Less dangerous. Much less dangerous. Um, whatever the bad thing is that people might do with universal constructors, the, the, the argument applies for any other technology as well. Uh, so that if if the bad guys have a universal constructor that can create the virus, 
Presumably the good guys have a universal constructor that can undo it. And better than that, they have a universal constructor that can work faster. Okay, they're, they're, I can imagine there could be universal constructor is just that thing that can build anything that's buildable. But I presume there would be different speeds. There'll be higher and lower quality versions of them, right? Like computers. Computers operate at different speeds. Now the bad guys are using their old, you know, Windows machine over there. And the good guys are using the equivalent of the, the Apple universal constructor. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, I, I would say the world is going to be less dangerous because universal constructors will solve a whole bunch of problems that would otherwise cause us great danger. Thanks, Mason. <laughs> Mason said, keep up the good work. Um, uh, John Ortiz, besides Karl Popper, what other philosophers are worth reading? Well, gosh, it, again, it depends on what you're interested in. Now, Popper is far and away the best for just broad-based understanding of stuff. But, like, you know, I do like Spinoza, although it's sort of metaphysical kind of stuff. Like, worth reading, there's a lot contained within that. Sort of, if you're interested in the history of philosophy as I am, Wittgenstein is worth reading because almost everyone in professional philosophy thinks he's one of the greatest geniuses of all time. I don't. But you got to give the man credit for capturing the intellectual zeitgeist so you better understand what he's trying to say. I think I understand what he's trying to say. I'm not that impressed, but, you know, <laughs> other people are. So, Yeah. Worth reading for that reason. Descartes worth reading. Hume is worth reading. Leibniz is worth okay. Um, modern philosophers. I like Ayn Rand. I think that she's wrong on certain things, but I don't think there's a, many better defences of capitalism and individual liberty. For example, I think she's wrong on epistemology. I think she's wrong on uh, aspects of morality. Uh, the importance of institutions, traditions, traditions in particular, actually. Um, tradition is very important in maintaining uh, stability while undergoing rapid progress, as we talk about here a lot. Uh, and I think Rand got that wrong. But, you know, all that aside, I think that's worth reading. Um, Dark Goat, his philosophy is very optimistic, speaking of optimism. Matt Ridley, The Rational Optimist, is a very interesting book. What are your thoughts on Matt's views? Yes, very good. I think that he, like Pinker, um, is very, very close to David Deutsch. It's just that, uh, yeah, he wrote a whole book on this. David Deutsch also had written a whole book on it, but really, you know, there's that chapter, it's chapter nine, Optimism. Um that really explains what's going on and the relate David Deutsch has the deepest exposition of optimism. The way in which it's connected to knowledge, physics, morality. That's deep. That's the fundamental explanation of what's going on with optimism. That problems are soluble. All evils are due to insufficient knowledge. So therefore you've got evil, you've got morality. Knowledge, you've got epistemology. What can be known, what can possibly be known, is physics. Optimism brings all these things in. The fact that you can you can solve problems at all is optimism. Okay? And if it's not prohibited by the laws of physics, then all you need is the right knowledge. Okay, so this is the fundamental understanding of optimism. So I think Matt Ridley is great. I think that just it's emergent 
special cases of optimism. All the and it's almost like um, I don't want to say self help. It's not. I don't want to reduce it to that. But uh, it has a less cosmic um, kind of perspective. I own, but uh, I read the book only once, and I just thought, yeah, I agree with all this. Yeah, I, you know, there was nothing that I found that I, uh, off the top of my head, I particularly disagreed with. It's been a while. I read it soon after it first came out, um, and. Yeah, so Matt Ridley, great optimist, but I like the deepest explanations, which is what Deutsch gives. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing with um, you know, Pinker provides often 15 different examples when two would have done <laughs> in some of the books, you know. Um, you know, books about how, you know, things are getting better over time that, that Pinker has written. And it's like, well, yeah, they have. You know, you can make that case, but he has. You read it and you go, well, yeah. But what's the deeper reason? What's the really deep reason why things are getting better? Things are getting better. Yeah, you've established that. We can agree. You, In fact, you made the point <laughs> four chapters ago. You're still making the point. Things are getting better. What's the reason? You know, and I think you find the reason in the work of David Deutsch why it is that we have this progress going on. Not inevitable, but incremental. Um, and, 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 and explanations as to why it should continue in a dynamic society. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tiesto edit. Why read books at all if you can discover the answers that matter inside of yourself? Because it's more efficient to begin with some background knowledge that's been tested, rediscovering things for yourself uh, from scratch means you can only make a lifetime's worth of progress. But what you want is to make progress on top of all the lifetimes that have preceded us, don't you? You want to stand on the shoulders of giants. When you read a book and you take on the knowledge that's in a book, you are actually recreating that knowledge. And you may very well recreate it in a slightly different way, an adapted way, an improved way. Could be worse, could be improved, but that's what people do when they when they come to a book. They bring their ideas with it, and they can change it. And when they go and explain it to other people, they can change it in better and worse ways as well. Okay, there's no method of communication that's without ambiguity, as we say. It is not possible to speak in such a way as you cannot be misunderstood, as Karl Popper says. And so, yeah, it's no good just discovering. Uh, the answers that matter inside of yourself, uh, if you want to make progress, if you were just to start from scratch on every single thing, expect to make as much progress as, you know, the caveman did. <laughs> but we're not cavemen. We have, this is why we have libraries and knowledge and stuff, so we can build upon and not just start from scratch, not build upon nothing, but build upon something. Uh, Todd Abrams what do you mean when you say monopolies are the only possible when enabled by the government? I think they're so-called natural monopolies. There are natural monopolies in the markets when someone invents something for the first time. I'm just going to have a little bit of my um, milkshake here. Um, so this was made by a blender, right? And so... The first person to ever make a blender, an electric blender, had a monopoly on the market. 
by definition, because there were no other no other blenders had been invented. Same is true of the you know the the iPhone, the, the smartphone, right? It's my smartphone here. Apple came out with the smartphone first and had a natural monopoly for what? A year or two? I can't remember the history of this. But it wasn't long before Samsung came out with a copy. <laughs> there are there is no situation in which a monopoly can be entrenched unless government gets involved because then force can be used, literal force. Guns and strongmen can come along and say, you can't do that. You can't sell that thing. That's the only time you have a monopoly. I think, you know, less and less in Australia now, but I'm pretty sure in Australia, letters, might be the same in America and the United States, but letters to people's houses, you know, like you write a letter, put it in an envelope, send it to someone. The only one legally able to deliver that letter, I think, is Australia Post, you know, the, our post offices. Um, you can have couriers and stuff, but that's different. So I have a monopoly. There are, there are various monopolies instantiated by government. I think monopoly, the government needs to be a monopoly on violence there should only be one police force. There should only be one military. But for everything else, things work best when you don't have um, force being used. And although there might be situations where, there could be situations where, um, like with Google, let's say, a particular service or good is provided and persists over time for a long time and basically dominates the market. Google is not a monopoly. There, there is Bing and there are other things out there. Um, now, are they anywhere near as dominant as Google? No, not at all. But if the history of internet, the internet shows us anything at all, it's that anything you think is going to stick around, Netscape, IRC, <laughs> um, ICQ, there are just so many, MySpace, <laughs> anything you think is going to dominate the market is... Not going to forever. I don't think Google's going to be around forever. I think another search engine will come along, absolutely. How long will it take? Five years, 10 years? I don't know. But uh, Google does not have the power, the authority. Like when I say power, I mean the literal capacity to bring strong men to your house and shut you down and put you in jail or fine you for not using their service. The government does. The government does. The government um, uh, can create monopolies in that way. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, I, I'm just going to triple check my, might call it a day here, but I'll just triple check my Twitter feed and see if there are any other questions that have come through. Um, okay. Uh, Likesh has asked. Um, he... What I'm trying to wrap my head around, he says, is that if the other verses in the multiverse are essentially copies of our verse, then doesn't it mean that evolution in those other verses took place like for exactly the same way as our verse? So all the small details have it in mutate. Um, what's going on right now is that for any object and for any universe, there are uncountably infinitely many fungible copies of that thing which means 
absolutely identical copies. And when a choice is made or a quantum event happens, the object and hence the universes differentiate. There are uncountably infinite number of universes where evolution took place exactly the same way as it has here on Earth. But there are many, many more universes where evolution didn't take place as it did here. Many more. Because the mutations would have led to other structures. Um, yeah. So that, that that's what I would say about that. Um, do I have any video or source that talks about this? Well, if you've watched or you say, I, oh, you haven't watched all of my videos about the multiverse theory. Um, well, I haven't connected the multiverse theory directly to evolution, I don't think, but it's just a special case of things that could have been otherwise. Whatever is physically possible in evolution by natural selection actually happens somewhere in the multiverse. Uh, the ones that are most resilient uh, the most resilient forms of life are the ones that are going to be most common throughout the multiverse. They occupy the greatest measure of universes. Uh, so that's one way to think about that. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I uh, don't have anything else to say. Um, what else have we got? I think that's it. I think that's all the questions. Yeah, what are your current thoughts on cryptocurrency? Yes, I've answered that. So unless there are any final questions, I think that's it. That's uh, nearly two hours, um, which I think is pretty good um, for today. Hopefully I can figure out how exactly to set up a live stream in advance so that when I go back in, it's a very easy process of starting the live stream because today that didn't work. I provided a, <laughs> I provided a, a link to the live stream I thought, okay, I'll set it up. I've done this before. Um, I did it the other day. I trialed it twice. It worked. And then this time, I go in to try and start the thing, and there's no button that says start. So still a noob, <laughs> not efficient enough on this thing. Okay, so, um, yeah. Until next time, I suppose, we'll end it here now. I don't know when uh, I'll do another one, but look forward to the next podcast, which is going to be, well, me trying not to be mean about the way in which Bayesian reasoning is used by so many intellectuals and Steven Pinker's view of rationality. But increasingly, my exploration of that book is becoming more and more a critique than anything else because there's sometimes I don't know where to begin because it's just so wrong in so many ways. Human beings are not Bayesian reasoners. Induction is not a thing. And thinking that you can base rationality on it is terribly wrong and misguided. And so the next podcast is, is that me trying to politely explain the ways in which this is a deficient, limited, limiting view of rationality. Okay. But until the next live stream, um, see you later. Bye-bye.